Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 60. I'm Sean and we've been on our travels. Yes, indeed. It's Ronan here. We have been up to Thirsty Meeples in Oxford Game Cafe. Had a wonderful evening. Absolutely. And we're going to be talking in the first half of this episode about some of the games we played there. However, it was just me and Sean that wouldn't be good enough. So we've been joined by a special guest. It's Paul, not the other Paul, but a different Paul. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Game Pit, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to blabbing on about games. Nice. And Paul's also got a few games he's been playing recently we're going to chat about. Now, the reason we specifically requested Paul to come in is because we wanted to do a review of Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game. And the second half is going to be all about that game. Paul, I believe you've got two or three games of that under your belt. Yeah, I've played it quite a few times now. There's a lot of stuff I like about it, but there's also a lot of stuff that I have issues with that I want to rant and get off my chest. Oh, nice. (laughs) This could be a three-way rant. (laughs) (laughs) And, as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming podcasts of absolutely fantastic quality, and we're in there too. We're also proud members of 2d6.org. Go there for audio, visual, and written gaming goodness. So, in this section, myself and Ron are going to be talking about some of the games that we played while at Thirsty Meeples, and Paul's going to be talking about three games that he's been playing recently. So I'm going to lead off with a game that I pushed upon Ronan and, and Rachel <laughs> and my lovely wife Natalie. And it's uh, 21 Mutinies by Asylum Games, designed by Prepo Listosella. It is a game where you are all on a pirate ship, but only one player can be the captain. There are going to be, now well, wait for it, 21 Mutinies, Ronan. <laughs> oh my goodness, mate. That's some good branding. <laughs> there is, that is very good branding. It's a very, very light, almost entry-level worker placement game with a slight twist in that you can mutiny, and the person who mutineers the best, possibly, or goes for it the, the hardest, is going to be the new captain, and they are going to decide where to go on the board for the next turn. So the captain's always going to get a slightly better turn, but he's always going to be looking over his shoulder or her shoulder for that mutiny. So as I said, the captain is going to decide where you go, but where can you go? You're going to be looking for trade ships to raid them and take sets of jewels. Sets of jewels are how you score most of your points in the game. You're going to go to the black market to sell them in those sets. There are also the chance to get sunken treasure and little tiles that are going to give you little bonuses. As I mentioned, the players can mutiny and it happens very many times, 21 in fact. And when they do mutiny, they're going to get a little card that's going to help them along their way too. Paul, do you know anything about 21 mutinies? I've never heard of this game. But after the first mutiny, I would have shot everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it came out on one of the Essens that we, we were at, right? <laughs> and I looked at it then, and it was actually getting a little bit of buzz. People were coming away from the table saying, actually, it's quite fun. On a basic level, very entry level, I quite enjoyed it, right? I can see why it made a splash at a con, and that kind of ties in with the fact that I think it shows its crowdfunding origins. 
in that it is simple. If you're doing a quick 20-minute demo and the designer's putting out the best bits of it, and you can do this, you can do that, you can do this, and they're guiding your play, you can go, oh, this ties together well. I'm quite enjoying myself. But they've ah, there's a lot of good ideas in the game. They've almost wasted them because I don't think they've smoothed off the rough edges. I think, for example, there's a jewel market you can go to. Now, you trade in these jewels, as Sean said, to make most of your points, but you can only make points if they have rum on them, which is another one of the resources in the game. And some jewel tiles just don't have rum on them, so they're almost useless. But then the tile market can get full of those, and it almost kills that action. You just don't want to go back there again. And, and I think there should have been some way of recycling that, whether you spend your action to do it, or there's cards that recycle it. Because you get those mutiny cards, maybe some of them allowed you to just wipe the market and go again. There's there's options there. Rum, you need it, like I just said, to trade in jewels to score points. And there's an area on the board you can go to to get rum. But depending on how many players go there, you roll a dice, add two, and then you divide it evenly, starting with what will be the captain, the first player. However, there's no way of getting rid of rum other than selling jewels. And you can go there, and then all the other three players go, no, I'm not going. <laughs> I'm mutineering. I'm going back <laughs> to the ship. And then you suddenly roll a dice, and you've got eight rum. <laughs> and you're like, ah, I can do it. And it's minus points. Now, that can be quite funny, but... Uh, there's no way to mitigate that. And there's things that mitigate almost everything else in the game. And it's a very tight game as well. I think we all finish within a couple of points of each other. So for me, there's just a couple of little issues with it. Our game ran a little bit too long. And we did mutiny most turns. It's not like we were hanging around and just blindly following each other. This one, I think, had to go through the washing machine of a proper publisher. And then they had a really good game. They just got a Pretty good game. So you're saying it should be like 14 mutinies or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it took a while to germinate what you were doing. It took a while to collect the tiles. For such a light game, it kind of took a long yeah. time to get yeah. going. It, it was okay, but there, as you said, there were some flaws. And that the area where you can actually go and you're the only person who can go to the, the gem market was kind of overused because we gamed it up a little bit and that just stops all the other players getting gems. So, yeah, maybe that could have been taken away. But, yeah, it was okay. It was okay. It was, it was, it was little game. perfectly enjoyable. 21 Mutinies, if, it, if you like the idea of kind of a lighter Euro that is quite thematic and quite funny and lots of screwage, then you certainly can do worse than this. But Paul is going to keep us on a naval bent. It's Alexander Fister. Yeah. And I'm allowed to say that because it's his name. <laughs> Alexander Fister. Fister. So he makes this game called Royal Good, and it's a really nice small box game. And then they, they remade it, or reissued it, and decided to call it Oh My Goods. <gasps> See, I like that. Which oh is My Goods. Which is just a terrible, <laughs> terrible <laughs> it's name. A terrible it's a name. terrible You're name. You're an idiot. Sure. It appeals to the three-year-old. <laughs> Get the three-year-old out of you. But previously, right. he made games such as Port Royale and Mombasa, and stuff like that. So he's he's got a good track record. This one's a really nice game. It's very, very... Uh, Euro engine building. You essentially got a market of goods, and you take that market of goods and put them into your what what I'd call your uh, industries that you have built. You're then trying to produce more goods, which essentially gives you more money to buy more industries, make more goods, and it's the one who can do that the most efficient, essentially. The game probably... You're really selling this game. game, (laughs) game Goods, industry, goods, efficiency (laughs) is one of four billion euros. If there were cubes involved, it would be a classic (laughs) cube into another type of cube that turns into another type of cube. But it's not. It's uh, turn money into industries, which turn into money, which turn into more industries, which scores you points. So it only lasts about 30 minutes, which I think is really perfect for this game. It's probably nine or ten rounds... And nearly every round you want to try and build something. 
It's got a really quick setup. You essentially give each player one card that is your opening industry. You get some goods. But the, there's some really nice touches in this game. One of them is you get a worker, but your worker is dual-faced. You can either have happy worker or surly worker. Happy worker will produce two goods. Surly worker, who's rubbish, will only produce you one good. But sometimes you don't have enough material to run your factory and you need Surly Worker because he can do it kind of cheaper on on the cheap cut corners. But that's one of the nice choices that you get to make at the beginning of the game. But every turn you get to choose which of your worker is going to do it, Happy Worker or Surly Worker, which is a nice choice you get every turn. Now, if you've ever played Race for the Galaxy, they use a very similar mechanic where the cards that you get in hand... You can use them almost as money. Once that stuff goes into your industries to produce goods, that turns into money. So it has that mechanic of where you're looking at the cards in your hand. Some of them you want to use to build, and some of them you're just going to trash and use as money to build your engine. So that's quite nice. It's got that hand management feel of Race of the Galaxy. Cool. We touched on the theme there. The whole gameplay looks really interesting. But how much better would it sell if they'd had some ingenuity and used a different sort of a theme rather than I produce wood, I produce clay, I run my factory. Yeah, it is. The, the theme is pretty rubbish, to be honest. It's pretty rubbish. It's a theme that's been done to death. I think if someone came up with a bit more imagination, they could have tweaked the theme so it had to have something more interesting. Just setting it in this kind of... Euro German industry. Euroland. That's, that's, that's all it is. Yeah. I like that they put a lucky dip into the tombola of Euro game names <laughs> to put up two random words. It's called uh, Royal uh, Goods. <laughs> and I'm not even sure why it's called Royal. Royal, Royal yeah. There isn't really a prince or a king or a crown. <laughs> the king hasn't died and we're all vying no, for the throne, though. There's, there's nothing I'm of that. I'm kind of liking the uh, surly worker thought. We should introduce that more into Stone Age in the Love Heart. Hey, touching that. <laughs> there is some oddities, though. Well, there's a bunch of cards that give you bonuses. And there's one that, if you get in the first round, you can build it in the first round, because you have enough resources to. And it essentially gives you one extra card every round. And over a, a game of ten rounds, there's ten extra cards. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it... In, the, in this kind of tight Euro game, it's a lot. I don't want to use the word broken. It's broken. <laughs> but you, you can't have a card that gives one player an instant advantage for the rest of the game whilst everybody else is scrabbling. It's an odd thing. The fact that you can build it in the first round, it's not like... You have to build up to it or anything yeah, like that. If you, you start to, with seven Yeah, if you had to choose, okay, I, I'm not going to build this round, but next round I'll build this, fine. But no, the first round, bang, you build You're it. In. And it's You're a clear, it, to me, it's a clear advantage. That's a rock and roll moment, mate. We rip that card up and it's <laughs> <on> forever. <laughs> I have got another question, something we haven't touched on. It's the push your luck aspect of the game. Ah, yes. There's a dawn phase, which tells you half the resources are going to be available for you to use your work, I believe, or run your factory. Yeah. And then you choose how to run your factory, and then you're going to get a dust phase which gives you essentially another half yeah the market is essentially random you don't know what goods are going to be in there yeah flip over a bunch of cards that reveal what's in half of the market and based on that you then try and make a decision of which industries you're going to run which factories you're going to run and if happy or surly worker or if you hire some assistants where where they're going to work and it's it's a nice mechanic it does mean it's not a pure euro you can't just um maths it out 
you have to actually think about it. And you've got to use some of your cards to boost the market, boost your, your kind of contribution to the market. And then the second half of the market could be a dud. There could be no more resources or it could just flood with resources. So I kind of like that. I don't want just a plain... Because push your luck, essentially, hero. basically light games. And this one's a tiny bit heavy, a bit thinkier, but you still think it works within the... Maybe yeah. just a short play time. Yeah, I mean, I've played it with a bunch of different people now. They've all liked it because it was a fast, short game. Just a couple of really quick points. Um, there looks to be lots of information on those cards. Uh, they look a bit... A bit busy. I mean, I don't know if this, yeah, it's not as bad as out. Race for the Galaxy. Race for the Galaxy yeah. basically says you must learn this new galactic language. <laughs> it's so worth it. <laughs> but that's a great game. How is the iconography? Can you pick things out immediately? Yeah, it's cards? pretty good. After one or two rounds, you, the cards you just understand it. There's right. a there's a bit of the card that is the the random market bit. And you don't even have to look at that rule if you don't want to. You you can look at just the name of the industry, what it produces, what it requires. And just because I want to say the name, uh, we mentioned Mr. Fister. Ah, Mr. Fister. How do you feel about his other games and where this sort of fits in? Um, if you've ever played Port Royale, Port Royale lasts longer than uh, Royal Goods. But it has the same kind of push-your-luck yeah, almost feel to it, yeah, where you're in Port Royale, you're flipping over cards and you don't want two ships of the same colour essentially to turn up. Yeah, it's nice. I think you can see how his brain works and the kind of games he comes up with. So I kind of like that, but the theme, he needed to be a bit more imaginative yeah. with the theme. He's got theme problems with Mombasa as well. I think he needs a theme assistant. He needs, he needs to go away on a theme holiday <laughs> and just <laughs> think about new themes. Read some books, maybe. Okay, moving on to our third game for today. It's Quadropolis. This is a 2016 Days of Wonder release from Francois Gandon. It's his first game and he got picked up by Days of Wonder. That's a, that's a big break. Well done, you. It's played over four rounds and in each round, each of the players are going to place four architects. The architects can be placed around the outside of a grid of 5x5, five 25 city tiles. When you place an architect, you take the corresponding tile called the number of architects you place, and you place it within your own 4x4 four four grid, making your own section of the city. Now, the tiles come in different building types. In the basic game, there's only six. When you play the expert game, there's a couple more than that. And not only does the architect you place restrict the tile you get, it restricts where you can place it within your own grid via the row or the column. At the end of the game... Once you've hopefully placed 16 tiles, you might not be able to, depending on how you've played. They're going to provide you with power and meeples. Certain types of buildings provide you with power and meeples. Certain types of buildings are going to use them to score points. Some buildings provide you with, with points just flat out. The way that you place these buildings on the board relate to each other, and different types of buildings are going to score in different ways. For example, you can get harbours, and they score in one row and one column, so you're trying to create long lines of those. There's a tower blocks, which only take up one space, but you can build upwards. There are shops. The more meeples you put in them, the more points they score. There are parks, which will soak up energy for you, but score for being adjacent to tower blocks. And it's all kind of thematic in that you want your parks to be near residential areas. You need the people from residential areas to power your shops. So that's quite a nice little touch. In terms of the game itself, I think the beginner game feels pretty light and it feels really rather restrictive. You have fewer choices in what you can do. Um, when you're going to the last couple of architects, a half of each of the rounds, really you're very limited in where you can go and what you're doing. So it, it kind of feels like it's going to come out somewhat balanced and close. It's very much designed for beginners and to make sure there's no runaway leader. In the expert game, you get a few more choices 
with regards to that and opens up a little bit, but this is very much aimed at being a gateway game. I don't think it's any any heavier than that, which is an interesting choice. The city-building aspect feels a bit like Between Two Cities, but I'm going to come on to that comparison again a bit later. But that gives you some idea if you've played that, of the idea of how you're trying to lay these out. Sean, you played it with me, Quadropolis. Yeah, I think you're right. It is an entry-level city-building game. I think it has some aspects of, of other stuff. The one that came to mind for me was Suburbia, putting your tiles together and scoring off each other. And mm. I actually thought that it was deeper than I, I began thinking it was going to be. A lot of things interact with each other. I built my city in four quadrants and I just didn't really put the things together that I could have. I went, I concentrated on one or two areas. Whereas you and another player, you're kind of interacting around you. You weren't just you went heavily for one thing, but you also interacted with the other stuff as well. And you made sure that you, you, you kind of forced in that beginning game though, because of the way it is and the restrictions on placing architects. So if I play my level, my number three architect at the top of either row or column, I take the tile that's not that's three plus spaces in, and I found it was impossible to concentrate too much on any one thing. Yeah, you can't you can't really concentrate, but you can always be mindful of if I place that. You've always got a few choices of where to place things, and and trying to get things into areas where they're gonna they're gonna work off each other is the way it goes. Right. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't yeah. massive. It wasn't deep at all, but I think the cartoony graphics and the simplicity of the scoring each scoring mechanism in itself made me think it was even lighter than it actually was. There is there is a game there, definitely. Oh, it's definitely a game, yeah, for sure. Paul, have you had any look at Quadropolis? I don't know it, but if it's similar to Between Two Cities, I've played that and I own it, and the first game is a little bit confusing because you're never quite sure which tiles you should be choosing, which tiles you share with your neighbours because you're in the countryside between two cities, essentially. Mm-hmm. You've got a country, city on the See, left. See, that's a clever right. name. Oh, my goods, bad name. <laughs> between two cities. Oh, I know where I am there. <laughs> And and the first game is confused, but the second game clicks and everyone knows what's going on and it works really well. Third game on, people start to get a little bit bored because it becomes a little bit... I wouldn't. I don't want to use the word samey, but you you find that you're not... It's not as fun, that third and fourth and fifth game, because you're just placing tiles and it's you, you start to get hit by randomness, essentially. You pick up two rubbish tiles, you're kind of stuck, you've got, you've yeah. got no choice pick up two good tiles you pick up the four tiles that you need that work together score your loads of points so there's a little bit of that but it's a clever game there's some nice mechanics especially having to work with your neighbours yeah see Quadropolis it loses that interaction that Between Two Cities has got in that you don't care what mostly what everyone else is doing where the interaction comes in is you can block each other you can look and go, oh, it looks like they definitely want a harbour. They've only got their three and four left. If I put this architect here, it blocks that row or column and they definitely can't get the, the, the tile they want. But it's very gentle interaction. I think with more plays, you wouldn't play the beginning game more than once if you're any sort of a gamer just to learn it and you move on to expert. With the expert, instead of being stuck with a one, two, three and four architect, the architects go one to five and there's a pool of them and you just take any number you want. And it kind of opens it up a little bit more and you've got a bigger grid. And But I think it is going to suffer from what you said about Between Two Cities. It's interesting. It's fun enough. It, I think the scoring is probably more open even than Between Two Cities. You kind of know where you're at all points. But I can't see there's enough there to keep me coming back to it. Yeah, it was a case of I was looking at that in terms of well, am I going to buy this game? But 
No. Yeah, I'm not I was play too, it, yeah. but I'm, I'll happily play it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It's forgettable. It you know, every time you build a city, you're not going to remember that city. You're not going to go, oh, I remember that time I did this, or that time I did that. You're just going to go, yeah, it was fun. Score a few points. That, that's where we are anyway. Another Tarlane game, Sean. Another one. And this one was a little bit strange, Ron. It was not as entry level. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to talk about Lagoon. It comes from Three Hairs Games, designed by David Chop. Okay, so Lagoon, I'm not going to go into the backstory, because this game has a lot of backstory about it. You're druids, and you're drawing power from the land around you. <laughs> Give me some names of that power, Sean. We played it for an hour and a half. We should and know the names in, of them. And you live in a lagoon. Well, I can't explain <laughs> any Druids attention don't. to the names. Druids don't there live was, in lagoons. There was a blue power, there was a yellow power, and there was a red power. There you go. <laughs> That's what you're doing. So you pick your... Your druids. You have a chief <laughs> we got that druid. Bit. Yeah, we got that. You have a chief druid and... Even he's got a name. What's his name? The Druidin or the Eldred? Eldred. 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 The Eldred Druid. The Eldred Druid. And they're essentially workers on this tile system on the table. And they are going to do some simple tasks for you. They're either going to explore, they're going to move, or they're going to bring new druids onto the table. Is this a worker placement game or a tile lane game? It's... It's both. I was fine. <laughs> so when you explore, you're going to draw a tile from the bag. Each tile is double-sided with a red or a blue or a yellow power runner. Theme! Theme! <laughs> and you decide which to play in it. Now, why do you want to decide what colour? Is because at the end of the game, the colour is very important to what scores. The most prominent colour on the board is the colour that's going to score for all the tokens that you get when you explore a certain colour. So if I explore a yellow tile, I'm going to get the yellow token. So the more of the prominent colour that you have is going to score you more points. The only way of scoring points for tokens. Yes. There's another way of scoring. And one of the things you can do is you can unravel a tile. So you're going to take that tile off the board and place it in your scoring pile. The two colours that are not the winner are therefore going to score for every tile you have in your possession. So what you're doing is you're moving your druids around. Each tile has their own little power, unique thing that they can do. Tiles can move. They can give you little bonuses to various actions you can do. And you're you're essentially trying to control the colour that you want to win. Take the tokens of that colour and get rid of the other colours. And it's, it's a race to see who can gain control of, of the winning colour, really. And, uh, yeah, and there's lots of theme about druids. There's a lot of theme. <laughs> Let's just start there. There's a lot of theme in this game. Okay. The whole aspect of building the board and removing tiles from the board and making different powers available to you because you have more druids, really, than you can activate each turn. And, in fact, druids being on a certain tile gives you bonuses to powers you don't necessarily have to activate them just being on a tile sometimes is good enough that's interesting the thing about this game is it's really clearly a labour of love it's the designer's only game it's the publisher's only game and that shows because for the second time this episode a little bit like a first time author this game needed a good editor they needed to come in and they needed to take away some of the noise of the game 
because there are so many different tiles with so many different powers that it's actually quite hard to keep track of certainly what everyone else is doing. Yeah. It needs to take away some of the... For example, the tiles have iconography on them, and it says in the rulebook of this first game being published that all the iconography is for planned expansions. Now, you're going to take a dozen or more games to get your head around all that's in the goon and to know the tile set because there's 27 tiles in the game they're double-sided there's 54 different powers they can come out in different configurations where your druids are will tell you which tiles are relevant to you and there's a lot of game to learn in there when you're firing up going oh yeah yeah but there's all this expansion stuff you're going oh what am I for a I, get, I get the impression that it's, it's supposed to be like a 40 minute 45 minute game it's yeah. supposed to just boom 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 get it out get it done with but all of that information just it's very wordy unnecessary yeah time. the tiles are relatively big tiles they're like the size of the palm of my hand I haven't got a very big hand so he's, has he created all of that because he wanted more variety I guess so game, I though. guess so and it, and it feels like he's tried to pack too much in okay. there's an awful lot going on um, it, it says it's a two to four player game with four it's actually two teams of two so it only really works three player I'm going to mm. suggest um, I think two player will be a bit I put it down you take it off I put it down you take it off just a slight caveat to that and I think I mentioned when we were playing that there is only five workers so you're only going to be on five tiles at a time so there might be 20 tiles out but you personally are only going to be at maximum on five tiles so you're only going to be drawing power from those five tiles so it's a little bit easier than just this sea of tiles, but yeah, it's, it's still right. Presumably you have to read all the tiles. Because the players decide the what scores. Yeah. So I kind of have to know what you're setting up. Yeah, true. You know, what, what, what happened in our game is it looked like yellow was going to be the dominant colour. So Sean and Rachel were collecting yellow stuff. And actually what I'd done is made it look like I was making yellow come out and then I went and set myself up to destroy yellow but because they couldn't really follow what I was doing it was hard for them to well, keep I'd track. I kind of set myself up to destroy red... Um, to keep that down by well yeah I let you get away with the blues you were sneaking blues off on the sneaking <laughs> heroically defending the lagoon these druids are not friendly <laughs> I mean there's another thing right so it's a maximum four player game there are eight player colours <laughs> and eight different sets of lore yeah what's that about and is it, that for its I don't know but it tells you that the, the, the druids come in four sets of two and they're in different branches and, and they have icons on them that, and it explains all this to you for no reason. Like, any editor would have sat there and gone, mate, stick that at the back, or even better, put it in the bin. It's, it's, we just need four colours of, of player. There's no... And it's just things like that. The rulebook is yeah. really wordy. For which for what is mechanically a really easy game, a lot of the rules are on the tiles. It actually goes on and on and on, and a slight barrier to entry from it there. But in the end, I actually really enjoyed it, and I'd like to play it again. I think it was the most thought-provoking game we played over over the night. It was the one that made me think... Eh. No, it doesn't get that there? award for me. No? No. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a man of mystery. You are a man of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to play it again. And for all the things I think that they've done wrong, at the heart of it, I think there's a really good game there. Lagoon. Yeah. Terrible name for a game. Lagoon. A game about... <laughs> all worse than a, game about a game about druids in a lagoon. <laughs> Maybe they're damp druids. Water druids. No. <laughs> we are all wizards or something. <laughs> That's that's all it comes down to. So, Airborne Commander, this is a. I have to say straight away, this is a Kickstarter game. But my copy turned <laughs> up on time. I don't know about the rest of you, but mine was perfectly fine. Get your defence in early here. <laughs> and lots of people are down on Kickstarter, understandably, because 
they get ripped off a lot of the time. But this one came through perfectly. We're on your side. You're in a safe place, Paul. <laughs> anyway, this is, a, this is actually a solo game, so I don't have to play it with anyone else. No one has to hassle me about how long I'm taking to make my decisions. Don't have to have fun. Don't <laughs> have to be social. But this is, um, this is based in uh, D-Day, and you're leading troops, and it's a deck builder, but also hand management. So... Every turn, you'll be facing essentially a scenario of a mixture of German guards, possibly a tank, possibly an objective, and you'll have a hand of cards, which are your troops, and you've got to decide who's going to do what, who's taking what, who will block, who will attack. And at the end of the turn, you get a chance to potentially buy some new troops in, which is where the deck builder aspect comes in. And you will cycle through your deck quite a few times, so it's quite important you buy the right troops. The decisions you make at the start of the game are essentially the same decisions you'll make all the way through the game. It's just a case of how much you're willing to sacrifice in order to score your points. And if you're, if you're playing it because you want to win the game and you're trying to get 12 points, then you're going to have to sacrifice some of your troops. But you do become attached to them because they all have names and they all have a, you know, you know, a little bit of story to them. They survived that tank attack. But then two turns later, you're going to have to chuck him in front of a bunch of motorcycles. Germans. Sounds lovely. So it's, it's a really quick, simple game. You literally flip over a couple of bad cards. You look at your hand of good guys and you try and match them up. Some turns are very easy and it's really obvious. You know, you, you put your, your high defense against the high attack, etc. But there'll be turns where you have to make those choices. And it's a kind of funny one with war games because you are slightly detached from the fact that it's a horrible experience. But yet you're making decisions like a commander. You've got to say, well, which of my two troops I'm going to chuck under the tank? Someone, someone's got to be rolled over, essentially. You're really bringing this conversation <laughs> down, aren't you? So you, ironically, you are making those decisions like a commander. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a small box game. There's only 112 cards. So it's almost just like two decks of cards. So you can see how it was probably designed originally. Two decks of cards... Half of them are the bad guys, half of them are the good guys. You know, shuffle and We don't call them go. bad guys anymore, we call them the Germans <laughs> and the Allied forces. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's clever, it's, um, it's fast, very easy to play, and it makes you have to make a couple of nasty decisions about your own troops, which nice is quite good. Go. There you go. When you're playing it is, it, is it more about a game of planning and putting things together for future turns, or do you always just react into the random that might hit you? In the very first few turns, you probably are just heavily on the defence. You're unable to have enough strength to grab the objectives. You can't really tackle on you know, tanks and things like this. So you, you're just trying to survive and get through from round to round. The nice touch they've got with the new pool of soldiers that are coming in, there's four cards and you can buy them essentially, any of them or all of them, if you can afford them, which you, you generally can afford to buy at least one. But at the end of the round, you've got to get rid of two of them and bring two new ones in, which is quite nice because, again, you've got control. You've got the choice of potentially there's a good card, but you can't buy it this turn. I'll hang on to it next turn. And then if you can't afford it, you just say, you know what, I'm going to scrap it, get in some guys who can tackle tanks. So you've got that nice choice. And about the mid-game, you feel like you've got a bit more control. And you feel like you're actually just tackling the situations quite well. That sounds thematic in itself, though, in that the idea is you've been dropped in behind the front line, right, in D-Day. 
So it's it's chaos to start with. Yeah. But you're gradually you're getting your troops together, you're getting your lines of communication, and you're going to deal with the situation. Yeah. No, it, it it feels quite cleverly put together. There's also some cards called disorganized, and essentially, if you do badly, and if troops are attacking you, you're going to pick up these disorganized cards that go into your deck, and all they do is clog up your deck, and they just make things slow down. You can't quite get enough troops, and then later on, you think, oh, one or two is not so bad, but by the mid-game, they actually make quite a big effect. By the end of the game, if you've essentially played very well and you've bought the right kind of cards and you've built your deck well, the game becomes too easy at the end. Okay. Because there isn't a kind of structure where the game gets harder as the game goes on, really. Right. It's kind of the first turn could be just as bad as the last turn. So are the order the enemy cards come out in, is it completely random? Uh, you can play them in order of the deck, or you're allowed to just shuffle them up and play random, which is probably the better way to do it. Yeah. If you're learning the game, yeah, sure, play the cards 1 to 54. Yeah. But if you're playing it the random way, that's why the first turn could be as hard as the last turn. And do you think it would improve the game if they were tiered? If you, if yes. you went through, and or even if they gave you certain scenarios in which... You know, you use card 1, then 10, then 32. Yeah, I would have preferred a sort of, not necessarily a scenario, which is similar to what we're going to talk about later in Warhammer Quest, but Mm -hmm. I'd have liked almost like a a stage 1, a stage 2, a stage 3, when stage 3, you're you're up against Hitler in his bunker, and you're allowed to (laughs) bomb the absolute crap out of him. Yeah, nice. You know, it's it's a good game. It's a good game. Yeah, there's a lot of love for this uh, all over the internet, but the only thing is, and you've touched upon it there, is that um, with the non-randomised mission deck, it, it can be a bit easy. Yeah. You can, well, you're essentially playing it and you can almost predict, you know what cards are coming up. So you only really want to do it once just to learn the game. Okay. The rules are pretty good. You're, you're, every now and then you'll, you'll kind of go, what does this card do? What does that effect do? There's some icons. They're very easy to learn. But like I said, the second game, the third game runs really fast, really smoothly. Yeah, it's good. It's great for money. Cool. Yeah, I know I was looking for Airborne Commander at Essen, but the issues which you may have touched on there with regards to the print run it wasn't available so I, I never got a copy and I would really love to give it a go hint hint <laughs> <laughs> we're going to discuss now a much older game and a much well loved game and possibly in fact a classic now that it's 13 years old it's Amon Ray from 2003 designed by Rainer Knizia it's an auction game in which you're attempting to build pyramids in different provinces in Egypt. And the game is split into two halves, where you have the Old Kingdom and you have the New Kingdom. Each round, number of provinces can be made available equal to number of players in the game, and it plays three to five. And then the players are going to bid on those provinces using gold, and if you've played Cyclades, it's the same bidding system. I think it should be called the Amon Ray bidding system, but I call it the Cyclades <laughs> bidding system, uh, in which everyone makes one bid, then if any player has been overbid, then they get to bid somewhere else, but they have to change the province they're bidding on. Although, as with all of these rules, there are power cards you can purchase which can change that rule and yeah, yeah, mess with the bidding. And basically, once everyone has won one of the auctions, then everyone takes control of that province. And the provinces are going to give you bonuses in terms of extra building bricks to build your pyramids or cards or... They're going to give you an income, either an income every year or in certain poor years. They're going to give you farms, which you can fill with farmers, which will give you income. They're going to give you how many cards you can possibly purchase in one turn. And some of them have got temples, which will score you a few points at the end of the game. 
after everyone's won a province, you take turns and you're going to purchase one of three things. You're going to purchase stones to build your pyramids. Like I say, three stones makes a pyramid and they're the main way of scoring points in the whole game. You can build the pyramids in any of the provinces you control. You're going to control three at halfway, then the board's going to wipe and you're going to be doing auctions again. You control three, it could be a completely different three, it could be the same, who knows, in the second half as well. You can also purchase those bonus cards that break the rules and farmers which will give you income each round. Then all players have to face down and give an offering to Amon Ray. The higher the offering made, then the more money each of the farms is going to make. And also, if it's the third or sixth round, the more points the temples and the promises are going to score. At the end of the third round, we have a scoring. Each pyramid scores. If you've got sets across all your provinces, so one in every province is going to score you three points. A second set, one in every province is going to score you three more points, and so on. Whichever province on either side, east and west bank of the Nile, has got the most pyramids in, is going to score bonus points for the person who controls that province. And like I said, the temple score. Then only in the sixth round, whoever has the most gold is going to score some points. I am going to go to Paul. Have you ever played Amon Roy? I have played it. It's a really clever game. It's t- it's a tough game because you're never quite sure which areas you should be buying, what you should be doing with them, how much pyramids you should build in them. And there's the the one thing I loved about it was later on, just because you had an area and you built a pyramid, someone else could take it over essentially. That's right. And start wipes. scoring those points that you actually did all the work. Everything for. on the board wipes halfway apart from the already built pyramids and stones. So yeah, you can piggyback on other people's hard work. Yeah, so it's a there's a lot of tough decisions actually in this game. That was both my favourite and least favourite mechanic. <laughs> favourite, obviously, it's a really interesting way of looking at things, and it's typical clits, you know, just flipping things on its head. But uh, least favourite because it's just, oh, I just built that double pyramid. <laughs> Do you mean it. my double pyramid? Your double pyramid. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it a bit in terms of, I think if you played this game when it first came out or a few years ago, it's likely to have made a better impression on you than it is now because I think the first thing that struck the four of us at the table on Saturday was it looks so dull. It is so beige. Oh, it's dry. It is a dry as an Egyptian sand. (laughs) It's dry. (laughs) Really dry. And the board is beige and the pyramids are beige and the cards are beige and it is an absolute sea of beige. And then the second thing I'll say is, and this is where I think it's both a positive and a negative. Now, for an auction game to work, certainly in your first game, it's always difficult to judge the value of things. It's really difficult in Amon Ray to judge the value of these provinces, as Paul mentioned. And the second thing is, you kind of need to be able to link what you're paying with things in any game to how they're going to score, play successfully. And that is also a opaque. So is it worth spending? So when you buy bricks and farmers and bonus cards, the first one costs one, two of them cost three, three cost six, and so on, triangular numbers going upwards. It's very hard to judge. Or how much do I put in the sacrifice? And I think it's a game that is going to very much reward repeated plays. Now, the problem I have with it in 2016 is I don't know how often anyone coming into the hobby is going to open that box, look at it, play it, and go, I'm going to give this the five plays it needs to really start to shine because the whole feel of it is just 
Yeah, dry the cup. Even in Thirsty Meeples itself, the box had been opened, it had been looked at, but we've got the impression it hadn't been played. Never been played, definitely. The way it was sorted and everything, all the bits of cards had never been cracked open. So Thirsty Meeples has been open, what, a couple of years now? No one has ever taken Amaro off the shelf to play it. And it's still in the top 200 games of Board Game Geek. It's a very well regarded game. I think it might need a bit of a spruce. But a lot of classic games from those kind of 20 years ago even 10 years ago, don't have the kind of graphics and money poured into them for components mm. and stuff that new games have. So, yeah, you do. You almost need people like us to actually pick up an older game and say, no, no, play this. This is a really good game. I love to, but I, I couldn't, with Amon Ray, I couldn't honestly say to someone who never played it before, no, let's play this, you're going to have a load of fun. Because it's too <laughs> opaque. Uh, no, no, play this in five goes time. You're going to have a load of fun. So I can't say that I deeply enjoyed this first play of Amon Ray. But, and uh, this is quite predictable, I think, it could be the game that's got the most promise. That I think I, I would like to give that another go and another go. And but then I guess you have to push it as a, as a deeper, thinky game rather than a flash in the pan but I don't know, was, that was, gives you an instant <sighs> gratification. This is no fizzy can of pop. This but yeah, no, no, this no. This is a, a no quality time. cup of tea that you yeah. spend time <laughs> over. A wine, a fine wine. A fine wine. At no time, I think, was I ever thinking about anything other than what's my next bid going to be? How do I balance this? Where, where do I go next? What's that person going to bid? I think we were quite negative in general because those minus were you in growth <laughs> in the in the offerings and those minus threes came out quite often. Mentioning no names, but I think Rachel is cursed by Ammon Road. I don't think she put positive bidding all game. But yeah, it's it, I was constantly thinking through the game, and but apart from the actual interaction with the bidding, I didn't feel like I was actually interacting with the other players that much at all once the bidding was over and you got the area it's done mm, I think as it went on to 56 rounds I was learning to follow what people had in their hands more in terms of money looking at their income looking at how much they've spent in that in that buy purchasing phase and then trying to judging where it was going to go from there again I think I'm a little bit of a pull on that that more plays it's going to be repeated yeah. what I'll say though you said it's a thinky game I don't think the first game is a thinky game because you're, you're playing only on the surface level. Because you cannot intuit what things are going to do. Yeah, and therefore, yeah. that, that's a little bit what I felt like I've, I've skimmed the top of it. And, and there are depths. I like a hidden depth. <laughs> Maybe I just need to dive into this hidden depth. <laughs> One thing I did enjoy was the power cards and the fact that they weren't overpowered. They're all good. They're all decent. There was a lot of variety to them. But there was none, not that one card that people go, ah, oh, I wish I'd have got that. Because everyone got stuff that helped them a little and, bit. And I think the variety broke the game up as well, which, yeah. which it, it added that drop of dew <laughs> to, to the dune of Am and Ray. But there you go. It's definitely one to think about, and I would like to give it another go. Sean, you just, I couldn't pull you out of the uh, sand, could I? You couldn't. We're sticking with... Uh, was it an Egyptian theme? I suppose it is an Amphipolis, an Egyptian theme. Or Greek. Or Greek, maybe. We're talking about theme in this game. I'm not. No, what, yeah, probably right. not the best <laughs> thing to be talking about. Right, Amphipolis it is. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right. You probably is Greek. We should have checked that out. I should have checked that out. <laughs> <laughs> From uh, Desilus Games, and again, by Dr. Knizia. 
And this really didn't strike me as a Canisia game at all. <laughs> so you are archaeologists, explorers, and you have four characters in front of you. And why do you have four characters in front of you? Because each turn you're going to draw four tiles from a bag. And you're going to place them in the five possible areas on the board. There's an area for mosaics, there's an area for statues, there's an area for dug up remains of uh, adults and children. And children. <laughs> and children. Yeah, nice. And there's an area for glassware urns, that kind of thing. And four A, obviously. <laughs> well done. Would you, would you say that? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would you like to time, too. <laughs> and in the middle, there's a rubble stack. A rubble stack, would you say, Ronan? I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you basically place a load of rubble, and when the rubble finishes, uh, fills up. That's the end of the game. And you are in these four areas. You're collecting sets of these the different things. So you're trying to match the mosaics. You're trying to get a full set of the urns. You are trying to get the majority in statues and. You are trying to get sets of two adults and one child. Trying to make a dead family. Trying to make a dead family. <laughs> That's and not that, good, is it? Yes, so you take two tiles per turn, and the bonus characters, you flip them over if you want to take a few more tiles. One of them lets you take one anywhere. Another one takes two from where you were just taken from. That's the whole game. Mm. There's no strategy to it. Mm. It's a polite filler. Polite. Polite. It doesn't intrude. It doesn't upset you. <laughs> it's not rude. It just comes in, sits in the corner, <laughs> maybe offers you a little cup of tea, <laughs> and then a cup um, of tea and then leaves and leaves well before its welcome is extinguished. <laughs> Paul, any thoughts on Amphipolis? I won't be picking this one up. No, no. don't. <laughs> but I'm surprised. Canizia normally creates clever games. There's always some clever mechanics. It's usually very well balanced. You don't often have a runaway leader. I think they're lying. I had an argument with my wife because she said, I was trying to remember the name of this yeah. to put on my Board Game Geek playlist. And I was like, what was that game we played? That re- the, the really light one. She was like, what, the Canizia one? I said, no, 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 that was Amon Ray. <laughs> and she went, no, no, I'm sure that was Canizia. I'm like, no, you were wrong. <laughs> and I finally found it. I'm sorry. <laughs> when, was this, when was Canizia. this from? What year? Is it's this? from 2015. Wow. Just come out. It's wow. nothing. Wow, Canizia's lost it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, it's entirely predictable. If I were to go down to the local high school and ask a moderately gifted child to design a board game that could well come up with this if they've ever played any games. It's just and is dull. There, is there extra rules? That, like, you know, no. like advanced rules? No. Wow. Yeah, it's incredibly dull. and It's nothing. It's one of those games I would rather we'd got the box, put it on the table, sat down and talked for 25 minutes, and then put the box back on the shelf. It was inoffensive to the point of just being useless. I have no use for this game. It's, it's, I, it's, it's got a Dice Tower Essential Recommended something stamp on the front of it. What? Which is why I thought there must be more. There must There's not. I don't know. Tom, mate, you're losing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Paul, we are going to stay in warmer climes and see if you can warm our hearts after the uh, soporific ambivalence. I'm going to talk about... There's a game called Escape from Sunset Island. Uh, this was made by Robert Straker. I think that's how he pronounced his name. In 2013... Pretty much did it in his own back room. 
built it, made it, sent it out. People really started to like it. I think they've now kick-started a newer version with nicer bits. And it's a very, very straightforward roll-and-move game, but has Surprise! much deeper mechanics once you uh, once you start playing it. So essentially, there's a zombie apocalypse. You've all escaped to an island and you're safe, but now suddenly there is a zombie on the island and you've got to get off the island. It's semi-co-op. You can choose to work together or you can go off and do your own thing or you can help each other at the end of the game. It's completely up to you. You're trying to find certain items that will allow you to escape the island. So you need at least one piece of food, one water, and potentially some fuel, but you can share the fuel amongst you. If you can find those three items and you can get to the boat or the airplane, you win and you fly away. The tricky thing is, as the game goes on, everybody else wants those items as well. So if you can get an item of food for everybody, an item of water for everybody, then you can all escape. But the odds are you won't. You'll have a very small number of food and water. And you've got to make some moral decisions as to, well, who is actually going to escape? Because not everybody can escape. You can possibly say, well, okay, you've helped me out the most. You go, you escape. I'll hold off the zombies. But Usually, that seems unlikely. Usually, what actually happens is someone tries to shoot someone else in the face, take their food and water, and do a runner. It is roll and move. You roll a dice, and that's your movement. That's also your action points. So, you roll a d6. If you roll high, six, you've got six action points. That allows you to do movement, picking up items, and also attacking the zombies. The zombies move on a, a dice that's unique that's only got a two, three, or a four on it. So they can't move as fast as you, but they're very steady and they never stop. They will constantly just be walking towards you and eventually they will catch up with you because sooner or later you will roll badly and you will slow down. So the combat, again, very, very simple. The zombie rolls their dice. You roll your dice. If you roll higher, you've survived but you've been bitten and you've got two or three turns to get some medication or you're dead. You're a zombie. If you roll lower, it's brutal. That's it. You're dead. You're a zombie. Game over for you. If you roll exactly the same, then you survive and there are no repercussions. <laughs> so it's, it's incredibly tough, this game. As soon as a zombie catches you, the odds are you're going down. When you become a zombie, you're on the zombie team. I should say that most of the players are trying to escape. One of the players plays the zombie master. He controls the zombies and tries to take you all down before you escape. If you become a zombie, you're now on the zombie team. You want to take everybody out. You don't want anyone else to escape. So as the game goes on, more and more players slowly turn over to zombies. So there's less and less humans to escape and it becomes harder and harder. Very, very tricky game. So... The game is all dice-based, with the action points and the combat and everything. Yep. How long does it take to play? And given that it's all dice-based, is the game then okay for the amount of luck in it? So it's two to seven players. If you play with more players, it does take longer. There's an expansion, and it can now go up to probably more players, I think possibly ten. Um, you want to play it probably with at least four or five, because obviously the more players, the more fun. If the dice rolls go badly for you... Because there's usually one player who's just limping along and the zombies just eat them. The game can end brutally quick. 
we're talking 10 minutes. If the players do well, they make good, logical, strategic decisions, and they keep away from the zombies, the game can go a good 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then it becomes very tense at the end. And you always get these very close endings where someone might just make it, but they might just not, because every zombie is after them. So the, the time for playing it is very variable. Very okay. variable. The other question I have is, how group dependent is it? Because it seems like if I just want to win, I may as well get myself beaten and then be on the zombie team because they've got the best chance of winning. Uh, I'm not saying I would do that. But <laughs> that, is, that is true. The, the zombie master nearly wins every game. At the back of the rule book, there's a page to write the list of survivors. Right. My page is blank. No one has ever survived. I have heard of other people surviving, but it's quite rare. It's a brutally it's tough game. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's the it's, it's a challenge. It's incredibly challenging. I quit. <laughs> but yeah, you could take the easy option and just die and become a zombie. Saying that, the zombie master wins a game. As you, you're a zombie, sure, you're part of the winning team, but you don't really feel like you've won the game. To win the game, it really is being a survivor and escaping. That's really the true way of winning the game. Right, I mean, I mean when are we playing for? <laughs> <laughs> the, one of the things I like about it is the decisions at the beginning of the game are really simple. It is literally, what direction will I go in? What items am I going to try and pick up? And there are things like weapons as well. At the end of the game, the decision-making becomes really hard. They have a mechanic... Very similar in uh, a couple of other games, especially Deep Sea Adventure or Diver, where the more stuff you carry, the slower you become. So if you're carrying three items, suddenly you've lost three action points. And if you don't even roll four or higher, you're not even moving that turn. So you, you've got to make critical decisions about what stuff to carry, where to put it. If you put down some food, someone else could just come along and go, oh, look at this, I found some food, fantastic. And it's, it's your food, but no, someone else can pick it up. So you've got to make all these tricky decisions. And by the end of the game, it could be down to you and someone else getting off the island. Only one of you can make it. And now it's a case of, well, do we just fight each other or does someone make a sacrifice? So you actually almost get these slight moral decisions. It's quite nice. Yeah, well, Ronan loves it when I mention George A. Romero, so I'm going to mention him again. And I'm also going to mention The Walking Dead. Me and Paul had a quick discussion before the episode. And this game just reminds me of, of some of the things that happen in there. It's a cold, brutal world, but it's also about the human interaction, probably more so than the, the zombies themselves. Like, can you group together? Is there going to be a double cross? I mean, some of the players, if you group together... You do have a bonus of where when you come to defend against zombies, two of you get to roll your defense dice and you use the best one. So it is good to to group up. But now you're moving a lot slower. Your move, your team is moving as slow as the slowest person. Right. And obviously you then like, do I just do I just leave that person behind? Yeah, do I just go for it? The moral dilemmas, I love it. More in a really simple setup. Yeah. You've got these moral dilemmas, you've got teamwork. Everybody got and everybody crossing. gets a different character. So some of you will be good at running, some of you are good at fighting. There is a doctor and you think, well the doctor has an immediate advantage because they can just heal themselves up. But the zombie master also knows this and will target the doctor. Yeah, yeah. So Having a good character doesn't necessarily give you that clear, yeah, clear yeah. advantage. Why are you the worst character in the game? <laughs> <laughs> I 
apparently, I was, according to the internet, Paul is the worst character to have. There is a character called Paul. He's nothing to do with me. He lives in a little hut by himself. He doesn't even start where the other players start. Oh, he starts in his own little hut. I don't know what he's so doing. Out, but I don't know what he's doing out there. He's probably playing Airborne Commander. And now, Making more moral And even decisions. that character has to decide, does he try and head towards the others because he needs help? Or do you just say, you know what, I'm actually better off going alone. Because the zombie master will probably chase a pack of people. Because there's always going to be that one who's slower. Yeah. In the herd. So again, it's all these, it's really, so there's lots of really nice interesting decisions. Like, both like for the, the zombie same, master yeah. and for the players. Is it available, Paul? Is it available? Uh, it did get kickstarted, so it probably should now be available. I can't imagine it was a giant print run though. It won't have been a big print run. Have you played with the expansion cards that give you individual goals? No, I have not. So okay. I don't know how much that will change the game. There's things like, well, if you kill eight zombies, suddenly you don't need food and things like that, um, which which can change up. And I guess after quite a few plays, because it's a quick game, where you, you can rattle off some plays, maybe they'll mix it up a little. But that sounds really good. I would love to give that a go and uh, and work together with you guys. Yeah. I would never yes. leave you until it suited me. <laughs> Okay, and we're going to finish off now with another quite a quick game, but with a very different theme. This is the best treehouse ever. Woo! Now, the, the, the warning alarms are going off in the game pit. It's a Scott Arms game, Sean. Oh. <laughs> Your harbour fame. This is a drafting game in which over three rounds, you will be drafting five cards, starting with a hand of six, taking one and passing them clockwise. You start with the trunk of a tree. And that is the start of your inverted pyramid in which you're going to build the best treehouse ever. The cards depict rooms. They come in six different colours, but much more importantly, they come with uh, the coolest things you could think of to have in a treehouse. There's a laser arena and a candy shop. Pie shop. And a pie factory. (laughs) Pie factory. (laughs) And there's a water slide and there's a dinosaur exhibit. And there's a trampoline room. There's all sorts of stuff, which is all awesome that you would really want to be in the best treehouse ever. Okay. At the end of each round, you're going to add five more cards to your treehouse. It must say, go and invert a pyramid. One to two to three to four to five wide. When you place a color card, the next card of that color you place must touch it. So if I put a blue card on my second level, If I'm playing another blue card, it must be either on the second level with it or on the third level touching that blue card. However, if I don't get blue cards or don't place one and that blue card gets blocked in, I cannot place any more blue cards for the rest of the game. You can be sure the other players will be aware of this and will be (laughs) handing you fistfuls of blue cards. How do the rooms score? Well, the basic way is every single room in that treehouse, no matter what card is going to score you one point. However, before you score, starting with the player who's in first place, you're going to draft one of two different set types of cards. Either the cards that make a colour of room score two points each, or a card that makes a colour of room score zero points. Then in reverse order to that draft, you're going to play them on one of the six colours. So I can choose to, for example, make red rooms either score two points or zero points, or leave them alone. And each player just plays one of those cards, which mixes up the scoring every round. And and to be honest, really makes the game for me. That bit of nastiness, that bit of interaction. You can't leave yourself being screwed. It's a tricky little decision to make. That's it. At the end of the three rounds, you add up your scores. 
Whoever has got the most rooms in a colour, and it can't be ties, scores one point for each room of that colour. So I've managed to get six blue rooms. No one else has that many. I'm going to score six points. It is a quick, simple drafting filler. And Sean, we played it. We did. I wasn't sure when you mentioned it was a Scott Arms game at first. A poor but Yeah, it was a very, very good filler. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It wasn't the most interesting game, but it's probably the game where I had sort of the most fun, even though I completely messed up my first round. Fun's not a dirty word, you know. How <laughs> <laughs> many rounds of drafting are Just there? three. You just can play three 15 cards, maximum 15 cards. And in fact, when you get to the third round, I played it again uh, the next day with my kids and they loved it. Both games that I've played so far, people have been able to place cards in the last round, even though it's only 15 cards, because the colours and the balance yeah. and stuff. And the so. rooms are cool. Like you do actually start thinking, "Oh, hang on, I've got a pie factory." <laughs> oh, cool! I've got a water slide. What, what kind of pies are you making in this treehouse? Making, making pies out of all the people you sacrificed in your last two games. <laughs> Sweeney Todd in it. Ronan was particularly excited that he had a water slide going into a into a scuba tank. A scuba tank. <laughs> <laughs> As long as it's not going into the pie factory. <laughs> yeah, a, a simple filler with a little bit of gaminess thrown in. Absolutely perfect to finish the night. Paul? I've never thoughts? played it. Scott Ames, I've played some of his games. I bought some of his games. I'm sorry. They, they usually have <laughs> really interesting ideas. And obviously the, the, the packaging and the graphics are lovely. But it almost feels like it just needs a little bit more work to them to make them... Excellent games. They're good games, but they're never quite excellent games. I feel that sometimes these just. Where do you stand on Harbour, Paul? Uh, I've never actually played Harbour, so oh, I don't know that one. Well no. done, you. <laughs> <laughs> the idea here is, I think that it's a very simple idea. It's a very simple game, so it didn't need much more polishing, and, and he's done it really well. And the theme. We started off with Royal Goods, where the theme's got to knock it down two rating marks. The theme on this knocks it up two rating marks. It's just, this is what we need. More bright ideas of things to play. Goblin shuffling around goods is no, no I don't want it. Yeah, they, the best treehouse ever. He could have said best factory, best Euro factory ever <laughs> as you shuffle your oh, I've got the 3.6 cog. Exactly. I've defeated you. So we're going with best treehouse ever. That's actually quick. a really nice, simple, clever idea. Yeah. Totally works. So yeah, uh, a hit with us as a filler and a big hit with my kids. They asked for it again and again, uh, even after that first play. It's best treehouse ever. That's us for the first section. We are going to move on to talking about Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game. So, our main review this time around is for Warhammer Quest, the adventure card game. This is a 2015 release. Designed by Adam and Brady Sadler, Fantasy Flight Games. It's for one to four players, and each play takes roughly 60 minutes. So I can say it's for one to four players. Each of you is going to choose one of the four characters, adventurers available in the game. They're the Bright Wizard, Warrior Priest, Ironbreaker, and Waywatcher. Each of those characters comes with a unique twist on the four different actions you can be able to take during the game, which is attack, aid, explore, and rest. Now, you can be taking these actions in order to defeat enemies, travel through locations, and complete the individual victory goals for each of the quests you take on. The game comes with a campaign system of link quests and also a longer delve quest. In order to start, 
You choose one of these quests. On the back of the quest card, it's going to tell you to select some enemies from those available within the game and then add some semi-random ones which are tiered towards how well developed your character should be because there is character development in the game. You also get to build a small deck of locations with quite often the last one being not random, although there are, again, varieties in quests. One quest comes with just one location, for example. There's different ways of playing. There's usually a nemesis in the game you're playing in the campaign system, which is a big bad, who's going to become involved at some point. You put them off by themselves to one side in something called the nemesis lair, which just means that they're there constantly peeking at you, making sure whether you're being naughty or nice, and having poor effects upon you. To play, you flip a location, that tells you how many enemies you're going to place face up, engaged with the characters, they get one each until all enemies are placed, and then how many are going to be face down or in the shadows, waiting to pounce when the moment is right. You also build a dungeon deck out of some dungeon cards, that's kind of like a random encounters, different things you can find as you go through and explore during the game, it has different effects. It may also give you access to a gear deck, which you shuffle up, and in there there's going to be some useful items. They can be accessories or weapon and armour, and different characters have got going to have different amounts of these they can carry and utilise. To actually take a turn, each of the characters is going to choose an action. All the actions work the same way. You're going to roll a certain number off the good heroic white dice. If you've got any enemies engaged with you, you're going to have to roll some black dice because they might get a free hit on you as you're trying to act while they're all up in your grill. The four actions are attacking, in which you're trying to wound the enemies. Now you roll the dice and they've got hammer symbols on there and they are success symbols. And depending upon the action, each hammer is going to have a different effect. And when you're attacking, it's as simple as cause one wound. To one of the enemies you've targeted, you can target one or more before you take the action. You also got a special symbol on there, which is both a success and an explode, if you like. You get to roll another dice to try and get more successes. There are shields on there. Now, why do you need shields? Because when you roll the black enemy dice for each enemy engaged with you, they might come up with a slash icon in which they'll attack you and do their damage to you, and the shields mitigate some of that damage. And the last icon is on the enemy dice. There's a nemesis icon. I mentioned nemesis earlier. They each have an individual effect. When you roll a nemesis icon on the dice, their effect is going to, whatever it does, it's going to do, and it's going to be bad. Each of the enemies have got possibly an armor level, certainly a hit point level, when you, as typical, get more damage on them than the hit points that they're going to die. The other three things you can do is aid. Now, you're trying to roll successes on this to hand success tokens to another character within the game. And success tokens get added to any roll before it's made to guarantee a certain number of successes. That's one of the ways you can cooperate within the game. You can rest, which will allow you to heal some of the wounds you've taken inevitably, and also there's explore. Let's talk about locations. Each location has got a exploration value on it. And for each success you get here, you get to place progress tokens in the location. Once you have got to the exploration value, you are going to be able to travel slightly later in the turn. Each of these actions is now used and will flip over apart from one, which has your prepare icon on it. And it's different for each character. When you use your prepare action, you get to flip all four actions back over again and you've got a clean slate to go. Once everyone's taken an action, each player then have to activate one enemy. If you've got an enemy engaged with you, you're going to activate that enemy and they all have different effects. 
or if there's no one engaging you and there's any left in the shadows, you have to engage with one of those. There is an instruction bar on each enemy, and they are going to take one or more actions in which they're going to possibly attack you. They might go and engage the most wounded person. They might retreat to the shadows. They might cause you to get a condition like bleeding or sickened, which will have negative effects on you. There are a big variety of different types of things and different programs within the game for how enemies act. Next thing you do is the location might have an effect and then if you've got the progress tokens on there you can travel, you get to lose the enemies in shadows if you travel usually. The final thing to do is the peril turn. Now this is like a timer in the game and you move the peril token forward on the track on the quest card. Sometimes there are negative effects from moving forward and there are different phases of the game, green, blue and red. And as you go through from different phases, um, different enemies might spawn, there might be different story points, you may have to do something by a certain point all the heroes might get wounded when you get to a certain point. There are different effects for different peril. In each quest, there are win and lose conditions. If you hit the win condition, you win, you flip it, and you get what it says on the tin. If you lose, you lose, you flip it, and you get the other thing it says on the tin, not the good thing. If you're playing in campaign mode, there is a fifth phase, which only happens at the end of the quest. That's the settlement phase, in which you can choose two or three upgrades. You can either upgrade one of your actions to a better version of it, you can take two cards from the gear deck, which is all that weapon accessories and what have you, and keep one of them. But you've got limited capacity for gear, so you may have to up your limit, your capacity, before being able to take more gear. That's the third thing you can do. You cannot do the settlement phase in the delve quest, which comes in the box, but you do upgrade during that quest itself. And as you get to different levels on the peril track, you're going to be able to take better gear and better actions and, and improve over the course of one scenario as opposed to five. The last thing you do is there's a campaign pool, which are cards which are going to reoccur during the game. And the game will tell you which cards to put in there. So if you've defeated a certain nemesis, they may go out of the game. If you haven't defeated them, they might go back into the campaign pool and be a recurring nightmare for you. Also, there is special legendary gear available that individual to each character. And you add cards into the game for the next scenario, which will give you a chance of getting legendary gear. So it's a cooperative game in which you're trying to attempt to defeat a quest and somehow be the heroes. Chaps, that's far too much of me talking. Let's move on. Warhammer quest. I'm going to start with coming in a bit of a slump. I want to talk about the approach they took to this game. What market they were aiming it for and specifically in terms of complexity. How do you think they've pitched the game? And do you think they've achieved what they were trying to? I mean, they're obviously trying to get a certain part of the market. What part of the market are they going for and has it worked? Sean. So, if you if you strip this game down to its bare bones, what have you got? You've got adventurers, monsters, exploration and advancement. Advancement in location and in equipment and abilities. Right. So, adding to that that the, each adventure really only has four base choices to make. Yes, the adventures have different abilities and, and paths that they can sort of branch out onto, but they've still got four choices. Each person, if it's a full-play game, has four choices. That's all they've got. So I think Fantasy Flight, for me, they, they've almost gone for a quite a simple setup, but they've done what Fantasy Flight do. They've added in stuff and piled stuff on top of stuff and they've had little rules for rules and and that's where the complexity comes in. And the way the monsters work is, is quite is quite complex, but it, quite intuitive in, as it turns out. But it's quite a complex way. You've got to look at their keywords and see where they move. And that's where the complexity comes. So 
I, the answer is I don't know where they were going. They, they started off with a very simple system, as far as I can see, but they've added complexity in in the, the little mechanisms. Yeah, I I agree, actually. the It feels to me like they've aimed this at a younger audience rather than an older audience. But, like you said, with the complexity of the rules, and it doesn't need to be as complex as they've made it, I'm then thinking, oh, I'm not sure I want to a young audience to be playing it's like you're just going to be sat there going what do I do was this was this effect and the, and they kind of carries over to their rule book they've created two rule books really weird first rule book is the starter rule book which introduces the game shows you how to play and you're like okay that makes sense I understand that then it goes into slightly more advanced rules and then there's a whole other rule book called the glossary full of terms and you're like why do you need a glossary this stuff's <laughs> in the rule book so, so the glossary, you, I, when I looked first, I had questions when I went through the rules. So I looked in the glossary, found my subject, and it said, oh, you need to go and check this subject. So I went to this yeah. other subject and it said, oh, you need to check this subject. So a lot of the rule the glossary seems to be bouncing around. And you're like, just shove this stuff in the rule book. That's what the rule book is for. I agree with you. They start off with that tutorial, and I hate it because it's rubbish. It gives you one sort of scenario out of a quest. So it tells you. It's really boring. You're not going to lose it. And it says, right, now you know how to play the game. And it goes, apart from, apart from, oh, and this, and apart from that, and apart yeah. from this. And by the way, that's some of how you play the game. Here's a glossary more. And it's just exception after exception. Do not write rules with exceptions because you cannot remember exceptions. You can never remember when they come up. You never remember where they fit in. So I hate it. It's a real barrier to entry. There's no proper summary. Like, I've, I've, So I've had to print out player guides. There's no other, really other way of playing cause just to remember what the hell happens each time. And that all kind of adds together to a fiddliness, which I think we're getting at that complexity. I'll say a fiddliness rather than complexity, because it's just you have to keep track of little things. And even throughout play of the game, there's little exceptions. There's a little, oh, what does that do? And I've forgotten about that one. And, oh, I didn't move that one right. And, oh, crikey. The second thing I'll say in terms of I don't know who they were aiming it for is that it's really hard. It can be, yeah, definitely. This leads on to a point where... If you do badly in the first quest, if you're playing the five quest scenario and you do badly in the first quest, mainly because it's probably one of your you know your early games, and you think, well, I will just go on to quest two, it doesn't boost you in any way. It actually punishes you for, for losing the first quest. So now you're not going to probably solve the second quest. Yeah. So they punish you again. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a cascading It's effect, a cascading yeah. effect, which is really unusual. Most most games that have this kind of structure, they actually give you a slight boost if you do badly. Yeah. If you do well, they actually start to make the game harder for you because you need a bigger challenge. Yeah. But they've done the opposite, and it's a really unusual structure. It is. They've made some strange decisions on that. And, and you are likely to lose it the first couple of times because... You do need to cooperate, and there's some amount of luck in there. But anyway, so I just want to jump in, guys. For, yeah, for me, I think it can actually work. If you look at something like Eldritch Horror, where the actual base rulebook told you everything you need to know, and the glossary was a glossary of things they've already shown you, then I think it, then it works. But the, the the fundamental thing is the base rulebook has to work and has to tell you how to play the game. And yeah, as Roland right said, you can't have exceptions. Upon yeah, exceptions, this the way they've done it. I don't know. It's almost like it feels like it was written by two different people. That yeah, someone wrote the glossary, and they it had that just stinks. They were just yeah. huge just vague rubbish. areas yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd go to the area they said to go find this rule, and it'd be it'd be so vague you came out number wise. Like, <laughs> and and actually, when you. I said you print out a summary. When you print out a summary and someone 
with a little bit of common sense summarise the game it's two or three pages and literally you can play from there with two or three pages and a glossary you yeah. can do it it's 16 pages of rubbish that confuses you going in that go what what happens crazy because it, I, I, it's not a difficult system now in terms of gameplay itself the enemies are the main barrier in front of you and you're encountering them all the way through and you have to defeat them they're constantly wearing you down so combat is basically what I'm getting to Sean did you feel that the combat created any excitement did you feel it was thematic and it probably is the heart of the game is there enough there to base the whole game around it was bits that I really enjoyed I'll come on to it a bit later as well but I really enjoyed the way that the creatures acted and the way that they act differently and how they interact with the very, the adventurers depending on how many wounds or who's the strongest, who's the weakest. I like that. That, that. felt thematic as well. Yeah, that felt really like thematic. Like the walls prey on you if you've yes, got injuries or Definitely. Or and the way and the bats will hang back in the shadows and, and nip out every now and again and there's archers. Yeah, brilliant. I didn't like... The, it's a mechanism where you can pull the monsters around and game it up a little bit. I, I, I didn't really understand that thematically. I didn't like it thematically. And yeah, it felt more like a, a gaming decision than a thematic decision for me. I was slightly against the, the, the way that the shields don't block a full hit as well. That, that is just annoying. But that's a personal thing more than a problem with the With the manipulating the enemies and moving them around, because you can sort of pull them to certain characters, or you can... There's powers that allow you to exhaust certain enemies, so they won't trigger... They won't trigger when you take an action, and they won't trigger during the enemy phase either. I, I'm torn on it, because I think you're right. Thematically, it feels a little bit like... Uh, Almost like cheating, it almost, I don't know, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel very heroic. You are gaming, gaming the mechanism. It, yeah. But I think mechanically, it creates a really good puzzle and a good multi-person puzzle. That's, that's the right word, it's puzzle. You, you look at the situation, you go, well, with the resources we've got and the enemies we've got in front of us, how do we make this as easy and efficient as possible? And you almost treat it like a puzzle. Yeah. yeah. Rather than feeling like the old-fashioned dungeon crawler where you went in swinging... And you got in there, stuck in, someone blocked, someone yeah. backed off. Yeah. You lost a little bit of that. It became very much an optimization puzzle. I think what adds to it feeling like a puzzle is that your characters don't feel very powerful. And you never feel very triumphant. And you don't really feel like your iron breaker, who's supposed to be your fighter, can lead the line. And, and really soak up some hits. And yeah, be that, he, should be, he should be called Ball Breaker. He should be called Iron Breaker. He should be right at the front line, kicking. But he's not no. that much tougher than anyone else. They're all very similar. They yeah. can all attack. Yeah. They can all explore. Yeah. They can even all heal themselves up. To some degree, yeah. means why, is that, why are you bringing a priest along? What's the so you, point of bringing a priest along? You've <laughs> got this Iron Breaker, and he's supposed to be your hardest dude. But we, if you boil it down, the people who can shoot from range... You, they're always going to shoot from range at somebody else's creature and it's the optimum move and you're not really going to... You're going to try to make sure they're not engaged, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, you're That's gonna the whole drag, idea, drag yeah. You're going to drag them over and it's just the optimum move. Ironbreaker, uh, the dwarf dude, can he can bring people into him up to two enemies he can engage with him. So you could have one engaged. So you could have three enemies just sat there. But I wish he could do that more because he's so fragile and, and certainly until you yeah, start yeah. getting armour and stuff. he's fragile himself so he's going to take an absolute whooping. Yeah. But... It's almost the optimum move to make. It's strange. Anyway, the other one, I'm going to say one more thing I don't like about the whole sort of combat mechanism. And there are some things I do like because this is definitely a, 
a love and hate issue with a lot of the points of this game. The engaged enemies constantly wearing you down just uh, just pisses me off. Well, I, I actually like that. I like the fact that if you've got enemies on you, you don't get like a free roll. You have to be very careful with what you attempt, knowing how much damage could be potentially coming in. But I quite like that. you do, they can have a swipe at you. Yeah, I don't mind that. I really? quite like that, yeah. Because it just means you, you can't be... You can't just do anything you want. You but have it to be adds that thing of they're all the same. Because like the Ironbreaker can track three enemies, but even if he tries to rest... He's resting to heal two hit points. He's getting hit for 17. <laughs> and you're like, that's not a very good rest, mate. I don't think that was a good move. But because all your actions aren't available, you know, I feel like if he was a bit tougher, I'd go about the same thing. I just feel like it should be more... The, thing, the thing that I don't like about the combat is the dice resolution mechanic. Now, I love rolling dice, but yeah. when you roll the white dice, you're almost guaranteed to get one success on each dice. There's yeah. only one face... That is a, what you would call a fail, but it's not even a fail. It's a shield, which yeah. helps you in a bit of defense. Every other face gives you a success. So if you roll three white dice, you're probably going to get three successes. So the way they've built the game is that rather than having to roll a success to win, you've actually got to roll a number of successes. So the game becomes, well, how can I get five dice rolling rather than three dice? Yeah, yeah. Which is similar to if you've ever played Pathfinder, the adventure card game. Yeah. You've got to roll a dice to get a certain result, but you actually end up playing, I need six of them, yeah. so that my minimum roll will be six. I give six. you a prayer. I give you a prayer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it doesn't even become about what you roll numbers you roll on the dice. It becomes the quantity of dice. Which yeah, I, it's how much you push your luck, how much yeah, you guarantee. I, which I don't success. like. I want, I want the roll of the dice to either kill me or save <laughs> me. I, yeah, that's and then, why. And then your, your tank, as we said, the poker you want to be a lead in, all of a sudden he's got two or three with him. And he kind of gets in an infinite loop unless somebody pulls those off him, which defeats the purpose of him bringing them in the first place. Because all of a sudden, if he's, if he's going to rest and heal, as Rana said, if he's got three creatures and a couple of them have to be skeleton swarms, that's like 12 yeah, damage. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what I do. I do like the exploding dice mechanism. The fact you can roll the special face and then you get more dice to roll, more dice to roll. So there is a chance that when you take a swing at a, a particular elite enemy that's got two armor and four hit points, or whatever, you might get those six hits. It's possible. No, I'm not getting a lot of love here. I do like the exploding dice. I like exploding dice. But that's—I think they've carried that over from previous. The the one thing I do like about the game is the dwarven cannon, though. (laughs) Which you get later on, instant, just shoot an enemy for for damage. More like that. I want the ability to feel like I've I've done something awesome. Well, this on the on the box it says this is a game of epic dungeon exploration. The word epic is used, and I'm like, no, this isn't. This is a this is a game of crawling along, rolling dice, going scratch it off every box, scratching a few little bit of damage here, a little bit of damage here, and everyone desperately rushing to the next game location. of minimalist compromise, yeah. Knock, knocking on people's doors. Is not a Warhammer Quest adjustment team. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. Trade description. Right? Yes, crawling along. Exploration might be a misnomer within itself, but. We're going to talk about the uh, the exploration within the game. There's a time pressure. Every single quest is timed, and if you spend too long, you're going to get hammered because there's a negative uh, peril effect, which will happen again and again and again. Is there too much pressure to try and forge ahead? Does it feel like you're going into a hostile situation, being clever, dealing with it, managing it, moving on, being heroes, or does it feel like 
you're running through as quickly as you possibly can, scurrying, yeah. dodging arrows left and right, uh, just to get to the end with your last gasp and doing whatever you're supposed to do at the very end before you all collapse. Yeah, it's, it's a false level of danger where they use the timer to crank up the difficulty. Rather than the game itself being difficult, the enemies and the situation you get into, it's because you've only got a limited amount of time to do it, which I think is a bit of a cheap way out, actually. Yeah, because what it means is you can't all attack because uh, you, some of you have to explore at a certain point. And, and yeah, you, you are rushed. It's a total break. And if you get bogged down, that's it. You know that this, is, this has gone tits up before you're halfway through a quest. Yeah, yeah. You, if you've got... Essentially, uh, one of the quests is you've got to get through like four locations. And you do that quest and you make it and you think, great, the next one, oh, I've got to get through five locations, the next yeah. one, three locations. It seems like that's the only kind of difficult mechanic they put into it. Yeah. Where that, to me, that's wrong. I mean, apart from the fact that they've stolen that mechanic blatantly from some other games. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> mentioning no names. But to have a, this time pressure on every quest. Just kind of, you lose that feeling of a group exploring a dungeon, yeah. seeing what's around totally. the next corner. Yeah, you- absolutely. Yeah, this is the main thing for me. I know I said about the part of the combat mechanism didn't feel really thematic, but the main thing for me is that, number one, I don't really feel like I'm exploring. I don't feel like I'm exploring this chamber or this cave. Some of them do work thematically, but I, it, to me, it's a number. I'm looking at the sequence of numbers. What coming out of me? What's staying in the shadows? <laughs> and how many tokens do I need to place on that card to get through it? There's also that chance that you just bowl straight through. And that's surely, again, it's the optimum thing to do. If you happen to explore and explore quickly and get through with st- things still in the shadows, then that's always the way you're going to go. Yeah, I, it, I, play, I remember playing one of the quests and I played it through a couple of times to see what would be a, a slightly different game. One way I played it where I would do heavy combat, I'd fight the monsters, and then I'd do a bit of exploring. I'd go mm. to the next room. I'd fight, fight, fight. And that was bad. That was really bad. <laughs> All that happened was I wasn't exploring, therefore I wasn't moving through the game, therefore more enemies turned up, which meant I had to do more combat. I, then, I, I think I then that's how people it, play to start, Paul. I then played it through where I almost ignored combat. I kept it to an absolute minimum, and I just did the explore. Yeah. And that was it. I just went through the next location. We've already said that combat is the heart of this game. So if the again, if the thing that you're (laughs) trying to do is avoid avoid combat, combat. that you're avoiding the heart of the game all of a sudden. Yeah, and it annoys me that you're forced to explore, even though you might have enemies engaged with you, because you you know you have to take turns exploring. I'd be like, I mean. I'm going to have a wander around this hallway while these two orcs are punching me in the face and I'm going to lose his health because I have to explore. And it just, it's, it's a yeah. misnomer. I would rather, I'd rather they, they made the setup about the combat. And then once the combat was done, very similar to the original Warhammer Quest board game, when the combat was done, you then had a little break and you moved to the next room or corridor location and you saw what turned Even up. Even if they gave you a set number of turns. You know, this is these are this is four turns. Oh, well, if you're in it more than those turns, then something bow or another in one more enemy turns up or something like that. Even that would feel better than just calling it exploration because it just feels thrown in for nothing. I, I just wanted to turn over underground river. 
That's no different to the Overground River <laughs> or the lake on top of the tower or the fish pond. They're all the same. They're they, all, I don't care. They do have slight little, little uh, effects, effects and location them, effects. But yeah, you almost start work to ignore it after a while. Yeah, you, 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 you like, as Sean said, you're literally just thinking, I need six more counters yeah. on there. That's yeah. How do I get six more counters on you're there? You're looking at that number six. When the first comes out, you're looking at the, <laughs> the red monsters and the shadow monsters and then you're looking at that number. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's what we need. Which, which leads us on, because very much linked into this, is uh, something I always bang on about the pacing of a game now there's two sort of ways of pacing within this there's the campaign overall pacing and levelling we're going to get to that in a while within a quest do you feel like you're building to a crescendo do you feel like that you're achieving something do you feel like there's an arc there that you're no. exploring <laughs> <laughs> moving on thanks Paul sure. right. <laughs> the decisions you make at the, the start of the round are the same decisions you make at the end of the round you're just trying to minimise the incoming damage so that you can explore, essentially. That's that's all it is. Yeah, I think they've tried to almost crowbar sort of theme and arc in here with like specific que- creatures in the quests. They have tried to make the quest rooms act a little bit differently. But again, am I am I look am I feeling like I'm on this journey and am I feeling like I'm on this sort of overarching quest for good no I just don't feel like that I feel like I'm trying to achieve targets you're on a fun run as opposed to a quest well fun and run (laughs) do they go together (laughs) you're on a a fun shuffle a forced march what the real real issue that I've got with the pacing is the whole quest is a downward spiral from full health to no health and it's constantly whittling at you, and it's constantly pushing out, and it's a negative experience. Yeah. You never feel like oh, I've achieved something or I've done something great. You just feel like, Whew, that damaged me less than it could have damaged me. <laughs> that's my that's my major achievement in this quest so far. And and the other funny thing is that you kind of crawl over the line. You go through all these perilous encounters. You leave monsters behind in the shadows. You crawl over the finish line at the, this lair of the boss, and then you go right. You're done. See you later, lads. It's like, <laughs> are they all going to go home? Or we, have we found a secret door back to the tavern? I don't. Yeah. The pacing doesn't work. Going back to Paul's point, where he actually played it the second time through and just tried to boom through straight through. Some good dice rolling, or if you play like that, and you don't see any of the adventures. So there is no arc to see. You're just literally sprinting through <laughs> these chambers. <laughs> Waving at a few monsters as you pass them. It's like when, when you uh, on your left is the <laughs> and you'll see on the right would be the underground river. When you achieve a belt in a jiu-jitsu, there's a tradition that you walk down the mat and all your teammates get their own belts and whack you as hard as they can <laughs> and you have to just walk slowly down through the ball while they're doing this and you're not supposed to flinch or whatever you that's what this, they've boxed that experience <laughs> I'm walking through a dungeon and things punch me and I just carry on walking okay here's something I think that we've touched on that I think they do do well and that's the enemies within the game there's variety to them uh, the, the, are they thematic we've said that they can be quite gamey but I do love the different effects. I do love the way yeah, that Yeah, that mechanic that they've created where with a simple just two or three key words, it gives you the the enemy AI. Yeah. What the enemy will do is very clever, very simple, yeah. runs really smoothly. It's really nice. My my beef with the enemies is the um the elite enemies. Yeah. They are not elite. 
the card is just tinted red. <laughs> then that, that, that's what that's what somehow has made them is more elite, elite than is? the other ones. <laughs> the, yeah, maybe they throw one extra dice compared to their compatriots, but they're not elite. They're, they're, that's rubbish. So you want it to be harder. No, I want them to visibly look different. You make different, different activations. Yeah, and stuff. be yeah. very different. There's lots of different co-op games that try and get clever ways of doing AI, and it's very hard to find the balance between simple enough that it's intuitive, so you can tell what they're going to do, and then way too fiddly, where there's just too many different options. Uh, I think Steve was talking about Conflict of Heroes the other day with, in the other episode when he's talking about the solo expansion. And the AI tries to be so clever, it ends up telling you to, well, you decide what it does. Like, That's not an AI. What they've got right in Warhammer Quest is that the AI feels clever, but it is simple. It's completely you know, narrowed yeah. down. It's three words. Yeah, someone's going to be stealing that idea. I think so, yeah. It's very unfantasy flight. They yeah. have piled <laughs> on top of it. They've kept it simple, yeah. streamlined. This does that. This does that. It's so easy. There's no there's no ambiguity there. Yeah. You know exactly what that creature's going to do. I do like sometimes that you've got like a, a weak enemy engaged with you and you're kind of like, oh, I could spend my action attacking and dealing with you, but there's no point. I'm going to explore. I've got to rest. I've got to aid. I've got to do whatever. Take the slap. And then you realize four <laughs> rounds later that this fellow's just been slapping you. <laughs> He's taken more than half your health. You're like, what? That will go. You definitely have to prioritize what enemies you fight. There's at least feels difference between what's come out attacking yeah. you. That I think I think there's a lot. And they, they, they right. do have three levels of types of enemies. Yeah. So the first level enemies are very straightforward. They're just like goblins and whatnot. But by the end, they're actually very, very much more uh, difficult yeah. and harder creatures. So that I like. They didn't just bland them all into yeah. one. Yeah, and level. sort of the, the the random or semi-random monsters you add during the quest, it goes up as you go through and you're using the tier three monsters by the time you get to the fifth quest of the campaign. So that's great because you need more challenge when you get to the end of that campaign. You don't. Uh, the, the other level of enemies are the the nemesis for each quest. I had to go back to the singular there because I don't know what the proof of nemesis is. Nem- nemesis. 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 The nemesis for each quest. I go... They sit in a lair and they have an effect whenever you happen to roll their symbol on a black dice and they will come in at some point and they are varied and they have different types of effects and one will keep hitting you running away and possibly healing. That dude, big orc dude, you've got the horrible abomination that will absolutely beat yeah, you. I, I like how they're, they're, they're there from the beginning of the, the quest. It's not just they pop up at the very, very end. They're always there in the yeah, background. I don't like that. I like I, that. I, I, I find that just a bit of a complication. No, I want far. some sort of cardboard throne that they can sit on <laughs> in the middle of the table staring at yeah, everybody. I just found it, yeah, for me, it was a complication too far. You, roll the, you might roll this the little horned skull token that represents them. They'll pop in and give you a little flick in the ear or something <laughs> and pop out I again. wish they would just give you a flick in the ear it's a lot worse than that but um, yeah I, I, see I just thought having the boss at the end of the, end of the level would work just as well the boss he could still hang around for a bit and pop up again but yeah I thought it, a little bit I think too. I mean they put some, they did put some effort in where they they had their powers were different yeah yeah, yeah. So I they appreciate react, what they've they acted done yeah. and reacted differently I, that was quite nice no, they definitely do feel different. Uh, the the one bit that annoys me is that when you roll that symbol, something bad's going to happen. 
and you're just like, just because I rolled a symbol, it's like, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's no need to give me more of a kick in. I'm, yeah, I'm already suffering during this game. Well, that's when you need the item called Lucky Coin. That allows you to re roll the, the bad guy's uh, dice. Okay, okay. I had it one point, it never worked. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't need it at all. Right. Um, in terms of enemies and nemesis, now there's a different nemesis for each quest. In terms of enemies, is there enough variety of them within the game? Sure. I I think there is. I think there is plenty. There's not a whole heap of different cards in this game, but I think there's enough for what you get in the game. Had We're, we're going to get on to it later, but had there been more in the box, more quests, I think there probably wouldn't be. I think it matches the amount of quests and the amount of replay value that's in the game. Yeah, I totally agree. We're, we're going to obviously bitch about the quantity of quests in this game. There's barely any content in this game. But for what little content there is, essentially one game's worth, there is enough enemies and a variety of enemies to fit that one quest. My worry is obviously later on when they bring out more quests, are they just going to reuse the same enemies again? Mm-hmm. Or will they introduce more? I don't know. I Now we talked about the pace of individual quests before. The pace of the campaign. So there's that fifth phase whenever you finish questing the campaign, in which you can uh, level up. Does the levelling up system work for you? Is the difficulty curve of the whole campaign, because the nemeses definitely get harder, the enemies get harder, uh, what you're asked to do gets harder, but you're supposed to become more powerful. Have they levelled that off correctly? And mostly, and there's not, by the way, are there enough levelling choices? There's not. <laughs> that whole section is pretty rubbish. Yes. That bit should be really enjoyable... Because most people who play these kind of games love the fact that they get into their character and they build their character and they level it up. In this game, you don't really get to do that. You're allowed to bump up one of your actions to a new one, but that's a choice. And I'm like, well, who would choose not to upgrade one of their actions? So that's a really weird thing. Mm. Surely you would always upgrade your four basic actions. And then you're trying to find these legendary items... I guess it's down to luck, but we, we were quite unlucky. We never found many in the games that I no, played. No, yeah, no, no. You're lucky if you get one or two legendary yeah. items. Maybe they're supposed to be that rare. Maybe they, they make them feel better. But I would rather each of the characters got at least one legendary weapon and felt like a hero. Yeah, they're part of the gear deck. They get shuffled in and it's all down to explore and how often you explore and how often you get certain dungeon cards and they don't come out that often Sean the levelling system again it's it's encouraging to you to explore more which takes you away from the heart of the game which is the combat with the beasts but anyway yeah I I didn't hate the levelling up aspect I think they did it a lot better than something I know I know why they call it epic exploration (laughs) because that's all you do in this game is explore yeah, we, we will be comparing the games later, but it, something like the Ravenloft series, uh, that didn't do levelling up hardly well at all. So it's obviously better than that. Not as good as something like Pathfinder. It's not great, but I thought it was just about adequate. But No, it's not adequate. Repeated plays, I'd want more. You're rubbish. It's not adequate at all. It's <laughs> no, really it's, very, it's quite unsatis- <laughs> yeah, unsatisfying to make it for a quest yeah. and then essentially get... The thing is, it doesn't make you feel more heroic. It doesn't make you feel like you've earned anything. And the most important thing about levelling for so many people is that you get to make your character unique. 
I have chosen this path. I have chosen this upgrade. I have chosen to take this. And there's just not enough. If there was three different ways to become a warrior priest, you know, I choose to become the guardian or I choose to become the acolyte. You know, we've all seen them, right? There's ways of doing that. But you're going through on a very set path. And by the end of the quest, everyone's bright wizard is going to look very, very similar. And everyone's warrior priest is going to look very, very similar whenever you go through the quest. And that is not good enough for me when you're trying to push that there is a quest, there is a campaign that is levelling. The second point on there, though, was, lads, the difficulty of the campaign arc. Do you feel like they've got the difficulty right? And do you feel like you're getting more heroic and the challenges coming up at the same time as you? Uh, not really. I've, I've read a lot and I've done it myself. That very first quest is quite tough. And it can be, obviously, if you get some bad roles and bad enemies come out. And you find a lot of people play replay that first quest quite a few times until they actually succeed. Yeah. And then they use that as their stepping stone for the rest mm. of the game. If you, you know, if you if you lose that first quest, it's all downhill from yes, there. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I found. Yeah. And um, did you find that quest two, three, four, and five were they as difficult as one? They 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 get slightly more difficult because the enemies are getting slightly more difficult, but. They all feel very samey to me. Yeah, there is there is different theme. There's a bit of blue here, a bit of green there, but it's all very samey. You don't feel like the arc changes at all. No. It maintains that. Well, that that they must have balanced the difficulty of the quest with the leveling system. Though. It's a it's a very shallow arc. It's random. If you get those legendary weapons, and they're going to help you massively if you get the right ones, and some of them are better than others. So you got that random thrown in on top of the other random. So if you get the best legendary weapon, all of a sudden you're probably ahead of the game. Is this Sean dissing random in a game? No, it is a little bit. <laughs> what have you done with the real Sean? <laughs> right, okay. I think we're kind of, we're in the old campaign system, we're a bit... Ignoring the campaign system, the only other way of playing the game is the Delve Quest. Now, there is only one in there. What it basically allows you to do is go through the whole content of the box, pretty much, yeah. but in one foul swoop. So you will level to some degree as you play, it's a and really the tougher odd, enemies will come it's in. It's a really odd addition. It's a very strange. Yeah, it's I like, quite like it. Really? Yeah, because there's people I would play this game with. That they're not particular, not necessarily gamers, but they want to play something like this. They're not going to be around for a campaign. They're going to stay to do the whole thing stages and I can play a condensed version of the game in one sweep with them but you're, you're seeing almost all the game yeah you are Yeah, because seeing... there's so little in the box yeah. that you know you take 36 enemies out of no, yeah. 37 enemies <laughs> and the work gone into the quest and the story and the characters all of that just gets stripped away yeah and it's, mm. it becomes well, I, this, is, this is entirely personal to me because I've got someone in mind who I know wants to play a game like this and that I could play it without it sort of cutting off in the middle. So that's just, completely just, personal. Just thing. whip them with the belt. <laughs> as they run. I'll stand in my hallway, in my front hallway, and just punch them as they go by. <laughs> yeah, I'm not with you, Sean, because the Delve Quest is going to take a long time anyway. It'll take, yeah, it'll take a couple of hours, yeah. So you can play through a couple of the quests of the campaigns if they really like it. And, and you get the difference in story and the difference in nemesis yeah. and more variety. I'm not so married kind of I, I can see a, a value in it for me. Okay, fine. Um, going outside the specifics of the actual mechanisms, which are given a good old kick in there, player count. Now, it's supposed to play for one to four players. If you play one player, you're playing two adventurers. So basically, it's, it's two to four adventurers. You have different varieties 
of each of the characters, depending upon your play count. And all that means is that if you're playing with fewer characters, they have more hit points. It's the only difference it really makes for you. Does it adjust well for the varied player counts? And what player count is best, Paul? I've played it both solo and with four, four players total. And it felt really balanced. I like the fact that if you have less players, you get more hit points and more activations, more actions per turn. But it is balanced. It works. Yeah. See, for me, I think it's uh, four players. And if you are playing with lesser player count, then still have the four adventurers in the game. Because I think you're losing out on the variety of actions. So uh, in, in a two-player game, you might have four actions to split between you. But you've only really got one chance of attacking. And with a four-player, at least all four you can attack or you can split it up between you know, where you want to go. But you've got that option to do it. Which just leads on to a slight separate point before Rona comes in, is that the fact that I think it does play better with those four adventurers all included, I would like to have seen a couple more adventurers so you have a choice. Or shall I have the, yeah. the elf? Or... Okay, so yeah, I can only get it to work with four heroes. I think my main problem is that the locations don't adjust to the number of heroes you have. So whether you walk in there with two, you're going to get five enemies. Walk in with four, you're going to get five enemies. Which means those enemies are going to activate more regularly and, and each one's going to take more of a hit. And that's the biggest problem I have with it. I do think it feels worse. Um, it's definitely designed for four. It definitely is. I think it works well as a solo game. With a co-op, you have to really, really have a group that's willing to properly cooperate. Because necessary to play well with more than like one or two players, you're going to have crud turns. Yeah, and if you if you go off doing essentially doing your own thing and you're not even paying attention yeah. to what everyone else do, you're going to fail. No, yeah, you have to plan sort of everyone's action before you start taking them, which can possibly lead to players who know the game better, sort of dictating. Well, one of us has got to do this, and one of us has got to do that. Yeah. So you need to be very open with each other. You need to accept that sometimes you're going to have like a, an aid turn where you roll some dice, hand someone some tokens, get slapped in the face, and you're done. <laughs> and there's, there's nothing else you're doing, and and therefore that's why I think. That was that was getting a belt on the back. Yeah, that's right. That's it's just strike. <laughs> so if you've got a group that's willing to compromise and work together, and that is one of the positives again, is the fact that it's truly cooperative. There's a, there's a lot of interaction. When I when I do play Dungeon Crawlers, I mean this is again it's a totally personal personal thing. I think this is very cooperative. You do have to play together. You do have to work off each other. But sometimes in a dungeon crawler, I like to go off and smash a few things. You, know I mean? you can't do that in this. You no. don't have the option to be the hero. No, you don't. You have to work as a team. Yeah. And I, they kind of detract slightly for me, but I do appreciate, I really appreciate the cooperative play. There's not even the chance to sort of take that million to one shot or jump into the yeah. middle of the troll. No, and it's not like there's even, you've got a choice between two locations. Yeah. You, you flip a card, everybody goes to the That's same location. Yeah. It's not like two of you go ahead and see what's up, two of us will yeah. hold. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, yeah, you have to work as a four or as a two or yeah. whatever you're doing it. Okay. So if you work with Fancy Flight Games, it might be time to uh, put this on mute for the next couple of minutes. Because <laughs> here is the pressing question of the day. Value for money. Do you get enough in the box? Are you happy with your purchase in terms of value? Let's start there. For me, it doesn't have enough in the box. And... Because it doesn't have enough in the box, you're losing out in replay value. There are, I think there are probably two adventures short and the monsters to make up those two adventures, probably for that price bracket. It's not massively expensive. I think it comes in in about the £25 mark in, in the UK. 
which isn't a lot of money compared to some games, but you don't get a lot. You really don't. The, the box is small, and there's not massive amounts in there. So I, yeah, I'm a little bit upset with the what's in there, and it really hampers replay value for me. Yeah, I, I have to actually agree with that. The for twenty five quid, you don't get a lot. I've actually measured the box. It's ten inches by ten inches. So you're just getting 10 inches for your money. That's, that's what you're getting. It's 100 square inches you're getting. <laughs> they, they could quite easily have put more quests, more variety of quests, or mixed them up somehow. But I think, I, I presume they're going down the route of expansions. And sure, once there's a couple of expansions out, you know, this game will work really well and yeah. be a lot of fun. But as a base game, there is definitely not enough in there for, for me. It's terrible. Yeah, it's, it's not value it's for money either. Bare, bare minimum that you could put in a box and call it. I mean, a it's game. value in the sense you get. I mean, I count it's over two hundred cards, and there's lots of counters. But it's not. It's, so it's, you're getting lots of stuff, but you're not getting much game. It's hardly a game. I can really hardly believe how little there is in there, and that's that's the honesty goodness. It's like a skirmish game where you could only play three skirmishes, and then you didn't see anything else. You mentioned the D and D adventure games. It's like get one of those, and get in the first two scenarios. Yeah, you know, yeah, and then you go. Well, that's yeah. it. That's done. Well, it's the start of a game. It's, yeah. If there's some ideas and there's just not enough in there, it's terrible. I, and I think it's clear. Fantasy Flight Games were always interested in expansions, and they put a game out. If it did well, you get an expansion somewhere down the road. I think it's clear their business model has completely changed to every game's getting expansions. And what is the minimum we can put in this box until we can add more expansions? Wave eight just came out of X Wing. Wave eight. <laughs> Imperial Assault. Have you ever checked how many things there are out for Imperial Assault? Oh, that's crazy. It's it puts crazy. me off. It genuinely puts me off. I'm like, I have no idea. But with get. Imperial Assault and with X Wing, you are getting a game that you can play a few times and it will react differently. But with this, it's kind of going to go in the same way. Maybe one of two, you're going to fail or you're going to succeed. Other than that, it's going to go in the well, same well, way. With, with this and a Game of Thrones card game second edition, I'm starting to get annoyed with them because they did exactly the same games on the second edition. There is the bare ass minimum of a game in there as well, yeah. and you have to have expansions. With this, to have, get any longevity out of it, you have to have expansions. Yeah. I mean, well, saying that on a positive note, I actually really enjoy playing this game. I, admittedly, there's not much game, but the small amount of game there is, I really enjoy playing it. Really? Because that hasn't come across so far in the last 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because I was going to say, you told me Paul liked this. <laughs> <laughs> so you do like playing the game as is, yes. but given that we anticipate there's going to be expansions, there is going to be expansions, <laughs> what would you like to see in any expansions? More quests. That has to be <laughs> the bare minimum. More quests. I'd like to see them, yeah, more quests. I'd like to see more adventurers so you get a choice. I like what they've done with the creatures, so I really want them to expand on that and use that as a platform and hopefully we get some really wonderful creatures coming in that do weird and wonderful and beautiful things to us. They need to give me branch and development for the current characters as well as more characters, uh, more scenarios, of course. They need to extend the campaign system because it's just too brief at the moment. And this is a very important point, something we haven't talked about yet. They need to give me a set of town folk 
that I am adventuring for who aren't a complete bunch of dicks. <laughs> because after every quest, uh, you read yeah. the resolution phase and they've burned someone. Yeah. Or they've killed someone like they killed all the children because they might be the spawn of the devil. Yeah, like, the what? T- the town people are really bad. They're just not good people. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not happy taking their money. <laughs> just, Something so- they need to fix as well is their whole location system. Because for me, it doesn't really work. Flipping over what a location card, and you're like Sean said, you're just looking at the number. Yeah. How much tokens do I need so I can just get to the next location? Yeah. That doesn't really work for me. They obviously didn't want to go down the route of having a physical map that mm. you moved around on, but the system they came up with is rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So we're talking about, we've mentioned other games all the way through, which we could say are in the same sort of milieu as Warhammer Quest Adventure card game. How would you compare it to the available games? I'm going to start off with Lord of the Rings, living card game. Obviously, they've stolen the progress system from there. Um, I think you've got much less control in Warhammer Quest. I think it's a game you can probably get more out of more easily, despite the ridiculous rulebook. But it hasn't got the depth, it hasn't got the variety... Because you can't customise your own character, you can customise your decks in Lord of the Rings, you're much more scripted in what happens here and what you can do. You do not have the variety and strategy that you get in Lord of the Rings. It doesn't have the possibilities. The possibilities, correct. Any thoughts? I mean, I've got both games, Lord of the Rings and this one. And admittedly, the base game had its issues to do with things like they didn't put enough of certain cards in and they didn't give enough cards full stop to build proper decks yeah. for two players which is a bit kind of silly you, you, they almost forced people to buy like a second copy of the base game yeah. which was just disgusting FFG <laughs> disgusting <laughs> but yeah I bought a second copy so <laughs> wise FFG clever. they are very different games like where this one is action role selection and if you've ever played Death Angel it yeah. has the same mechanic where you choose yeah. an action and you can't really do it the next round you have to choose something different yeah. so it almost feels like it was it's like the, the successor to that it's that plus a couple of extra things mm. whereas Lord of the Rings is very different game. The the, the whole deck building, but it's in the same sort of. You're, if people are going to be buying oh, a card game oh, to do adventures and, and fantasy, and fantasy and like that. Yeah. so you can kind of compare it to there. Yeah, uh, I hadn't thought about the Death Angel comparison. I've played Death Angel quite a lot as well. Yeah, the spatial aspect it. is interesting. It's, much more. I mean, Death Angel is much more streamlined. It's absolutely brutal. Well, I like what Death Angel. There's games where you don't even get out of that initial <laughs> corridor, <laughs> but it's brutal. But I enjoy it. Whereas this. It's brutal and I don't enjoy it because <laughs> this one's making me work with Fiddly, but Death Angel is very streamlined. Yeah. I mean, well, Death Angel has the thing where when you, you know, you get hit, you die. Yeah. This one, like you said, you get whittled away. Yeah. Game, you know, quest after quest, you're just literally being ground down yeah. by a massive foot that's just <laughs> grinding you into the ground. <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you guys completely about Lord of the Rings. Another game, well, the main game, because it's pretty much called the same thing, the adventure card game was Pathfinder, and it was the obvious one for me. In terms of Pathfinder, as flawed as it was, and me and Miranda both enjoy it, but we did pick up many, many flaws with the game, I just think it's a much better game. I think the world in which you explore is, is, is realer, there's much more to do, maybe the cooperative aspect isn't as, as strong as uh, Warhammer Quest, 
but the leveling up is come is so much better. Yes, we have issues that maybe as you go through the quests that maybe the actual items you get didn't actually level you up enough, but there was still that variety and things to do and and stats to improve. There's so much variety in cards as well. Yeah. You don't know what you're going to flip over. You're not forced to go any particular place. It feels like you have more agency, although it's probably a lot more random in the decks. Like you could literally pull out a great sword or a hydra that's going to eat you. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's not as tight a game. It probably isn't as good a co-op. But as this experience that you look for in a fantasy adventure game, it, it kind of is more fulfilling along those lines of, oh, I wonder what's next. Oh, I wonder what's next. Mm. Oh, that was fun. Oh, look, I did something and, and that was interesting. Your direction. Yeah, you're not. This is much more. You're in a straitjacket, whereas. Pathfinder adventure card game is a bit more of a, a bacchanalia. Yeah, I, I love Pathfinder. There's the customization yeah. is just beautifully done in it. The fact that no two characters by the end will have the same kind of cards in their deck is really, really clever. And you can tailor each character into a couple of different directions. You can make them very much a combat-oriented character. Or you can go completely the other direction mm-hmm. and they're more good at exploring and healing and stuff like that. Really, really clever. But yeah, the straight jacket. You were saying about the straight jacket of Warhammer Quest. It really is. You don't actually have that many choices on your turn to the point where sometimes you almost have just one choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not even a very especially for the team. As I said earlier, yeah. like the best thing for the team is I have to do this. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Whereas in something like Pathfinder, you actually get quite a lot of choice. Yeah, you can. You, I mean, you've got usually six, seven, eight locations. The choice is probably. Mean less each individual choice. Yeah. They're not as crucial, but there's more of them. Yeah, and you can you can team up together. You can split off. Yeah, you can. It's a really nice adventure game. This one is not. I adventure doesn't. No, it doesn't. Is the right no is the right phrase for no, it. No, it's a misery game. <laughs> <laughs> Any other games you guys want to uh, compare? Obviously, one I mentioned more before was the D and D adventure games, the Raven Laugh, the Shardalon. Uh, they are what I term proper dungeon crawling games where you can make that choice to go off on your own. The levelling up is rubbish, you know, and that's the biggest <laughs> criticism I've got, is there isn't a levelling up system. You, you flip over your card, yeah, and, and, and one they, of they your stats to, uh, gets a And then one. they tried with... Um, Temple of Edmund Evil, they yeah. tried to bring in one where you level up over time, and you earn money, and you spend yeah, it. And that was rubbish. <laughs> Toss. <laughs> Everything about that game was rubbish. But the actual... Apart of, let's never mention Temple of Edmund Evil ever again, but the other three, they actually worked as dungeon crawlers, and I felt like I was exploring a dungeon, and I felt like... I, Either I could work cooperatively, or I could go off on my own and make my own choices. Where I don't just get, I don't get that. It goes back to the, the constraints. I mean, people Warhammer playing Quest. Warhammer Quest are probably expecting a dungeon crawler. Yeah, but but that's how it's marketed, and it's yeah. just that's not the experience. Yeah, it's, right. just yeah. Mar- it's, it's a puzzle. poorly marketed. Yeah, yeah. puzzle. Okay, I'm going to throw one more at you guys. It's Shadowrun Crossfire. The expansions come out relatively recently, and I think the expansion makes it twice the game. Uh, it, it gives you the right you didn't have in the base game the same problem as this it is another game that's tight that's tough that you have to cooperate with that the enemies will beat you up at the end of your every turn but you don't necessarily have to fight them you can fight other enemies in the game so it has got similarities it doesn't do a spatial aspect but it is deck building and it gives you choices and you can choose whether to spend resources now or hold on to them for later and you still need to cooperate with each other and I think as a direct comparison to this game, Shadowrun, and especially if you put the expansion in, which I know is a bit of a cheat, if you especially put the expansion in, is 
ten times the game that Warhammer Quest is. I didn't like the base game at all. I, I really disliked it. I didn't feel like I had any choices in the base game. I didn't feel like I was in the world. And I felt like everything was kind of structured and mapped out what I should do and what I should do. It's fairly obvious. So I didn't like the base game. If you say that the expansion adds stuff to it, I'll, I'll certainly well, look, it if you hated the base game, you're not going to like it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit more variety of cards well, no, no, but you're slightly that, more structured a story of, to quote to me. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're saying that it's fixed a lot of the issues that I've got with the game. The, the, the structure of the story, the actual variety of what you can do. They were the main things. I, again, I but I always thought there was variety. <laughs> <laughs> we just came at this at two different ends. Have you played Shadowrun Crossfire? Before? I have not played it, so no, I don't you know. You should give it a pop. As a man who likes this sort of game, I it, I have to admit it's sat on my shelf oh is it gathering a little bit of dust <laughs> <laughs> it comes with my recommendation okay so that's a good old dig over why I'm a quest adventure card game Paul your final thoughts apparently you like it I'm not sure anyone can no, tell to this point it's weird yeah it's got a lot of faults and a lot of issues and I know that a lot of this will get fixed as expansions come out and you will suddenly you'll have quite an enjoyable game I enjoy the puzzle aspect of it the optimization I actually quite enjoy that the thing I didn't like was that whole speed run thing mm-hmm. I want more time beating off goblins that's that's what I need <laughs> okay <laughs> we started to wear whacking things with belts and suddenly it's all jittery okay me it comes down to the heart and the soul of this game and I just don't think we'll hammer Quest adventure card game has much to offer in the heart and soul department. I do think there are some nice touches. The way the creatures work, the genuine need for co-op play, and I disagree with the boys. I didn't think the levelling up was awful. It had some in there. But that lack of feeling that you're involved in a quest for righteousness and peace in our time, even if it is for horrible people, it's just not, it's not there. It's not present in the game. I think sometimes that we we call out games publishers for for not fixing games and for things that just don't work in games. But I think Fantasy Flight go the other way sometimes and they overcorrect things and they add lots of fiddly rules and processes upon processes upon rules. And I think the rule book becomes a legacy of these choices. It actually makes it harder for them to write the rule book. And in this one, I was so angry when I was trying to decipher the rule book. I kept having to go back to to the the addendum or whatever you want to call it, a reference guide, because I just didn't get the way the game was played from the rule book. And that's just this criminal. And I think that's almost led to me disliking the game before I'd even really got going with it. So I'm not going to give up on it yet. There are some very good things. I do love the way the creatures work. I'm going to give it a couple more goes before trading, but it didn't live up to my high expectations. I had a revelation with why I'm a Quest Adventure card game. I was sitting down. Yeah, something always nice. I was sitting down, I had it all set up, and I was playing it, and I was on the second location of a game. And I realised, I had the feeling, you get at work when you've got a deadline, (laughs) and someone's given you a menial, boring task, which you could have done for the past three weeks, but you never just got around to doing, and there's no interest in this task, there's nothing exciting to it, it's not even a challenge, it is literally some time that must be spent doing something. And I realised I was in that exact, slightly stressy, slightly burned out, snappy frame of mind. And that's what... It's a chore. It's a genuine chore to play the game. It is a depressing chore because of the negative cycle and the constant beating. 
I really want to love it. You know, I get the game out and I read the cards and I look at the nemesis, I look at the quest, I think, guys, oh, this is all clever. And I remember that some of the enemies, I go, oh, yeah, that is clever as well, yeah. And then I just hate being me in the game. <laughs> I, I want the characters to be something different. I want them to work in a different way in the same game because there's just no fun. There's just, there is no fun to be had in the game. It's too tight. It's a misery quest. The story's cliched. I can't recommend it. I just can't because games are there to be enjoyed and this one is just there to hate you. Well, Winchfest is over. That's episode 60 in the bag. Uh, thank you very much to Ronan. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you very much to Paul. Thank you very much, both of you. I have enjoyed my time here in the game spit. <laughs> in the game spit. Well done, Paul. Uh, talking about a game that you absolutely hate, love. <laughs> I love to hate it. Join us next time when we'll talk about some games that are actually fun to play. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much everyone for listening coming soon we've got some treasure hunts for you yes we're going off and scouting the future Ronan. that into the future yeah. like heroes <laughs> of tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much we'll catch you next time and of course we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network go there for absolutely fabulous podcasts you can go to 2d6.org where you're going to find written audio and visual gaming goodness. If you want to email us, we are at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Board Game Geek Guild where we love to hear your comments and we will freely join in with the chat. We have a Twitter page, we're at Game Pit Podcast. Like us on Facebook and if you want to download our episodes, we're on Podbean, Stitcher and iTunes. Music by E. Aaron.